VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, September the 6th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 888 590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, as you heard Brian Medor mention in the VOCM newscast, Canada back at it at the FIBA World Cup of Basketball, looking to be world champions and actually have a shot at it. So today they play Slovenia. It doesn't come across as a basketball powerhouse, but they're led by a fellow named Luka Doncic, one of the very best basketball players in the world. So they got their hands full with Slovenia today. And you also heard Brian mention that the Jays with a big win last night in Oakland are back in the wildcard playoff spot. It was on this date in baseball history, uh, 28 years ago, 1995. Cal Ripken Jr. broke Lou Gehrig's baseball record when he played in his, 20, his 2,131st consecutive game. People thought it was impossible for anyone to ever come close to that. Ripken's streak went on to add up to 2,632 games. The game was on television between the Orioles and the California Angels. A lot of eyeballs made it to that game. So Cal Ripken Jr.'s kids threw out the first pitch that night. And when it became an official game in the fifth inning, the game stopped. The umpires, the players on both teams, a standing ovation that lasted for some 22 minutes. ESPN broke to go to commercial as Ripken did his famous walk around the park to thank all the fans for the celebrating his Iron Man streak that was on, uh, on this date in 1995. All right, a quick uh, one with baseball, pardon me, with sports and radio. On this date in 1920, Jack Dempsey knocked out Billy Miskey in the third round for the heavyweight title. It was the first radio broadcast of a prize fight on this date in 1920. Okay, back to school. So you can only imagine some frantic households, some nerves and some anxiety, maybe some excitement. Who knows? All the kids are different when they go back, as are all the families. So yesterday we talked about healthy choices in the school. And, of course, your perspective on back to school is most welcome on this program. I'm well past my back-to-school days. My boys are well into their 20s, but for some reason I still get excited on back-to-school uh, the opening day. So anyway, in addition to the healthy choices stuff, you know, there's some safety issues. You'll hear all the standard pieces of advice about, you know, congested areas in the school er- school grounds and the areas where there are schools, like out in CBS, there's nine schools on one road. So at school buses and not passing a bus when it's deployed, it's stop sign and red lights, all the naturals and all the normal ones and there are important uh, tidbits to remember to be reminded of. But you wonder what kind of work has gone on over the summer talking about safety on the school grounds. We know there's lots of safety protocols inside the walls and the doors of the schools, but that one incident last year, and it's not the only time we've ever seen it, this one quite serious on the grounds of PwC where there was a bunch of young people charged with their crimes and an absolutely brutal beating that they doled out. So has anything changed on the school grounds, whether it be in the parking lot or the playground or what have you? Because those who are willing and wanting to be the quote-unquote bully, which is a term that's really lost so much of its meaning, you know, in essence, when the beatings like that are doled out, it's a criminal act. So has the government done anything to deal with safety outside the doors of the school? On top of that, you know, we're told, we all know that it's an ongoing process to absorb the Newfoundland and Labrador English-speaking school district into the Department of Education. Some people think that maybe, just maybe, that brings a bit more politics than required into the K-12 education system. 
But you know, we're told it won't be a noticeable change in the day-to-day -day operation of schools, and that sounds about right, and that's a good thing. But what we were also told is that in an effort to streamline and identify redundancies and any overlaps, that maybe there would be some trimming of the payroll. So nobody's cheering for anyone necessarily to lose their job, but we, we should only employ as many people as we need in the public service. So has any of that happened? Because the thought behind that is that if you save any money on payroll, it could be respent or reinvested into the system itself. So it's one thing to tell us it won't impact day-to-day -day operations, which is good, but we don't know exactly how it's unfolding, whether or not there have been positions identified as unnecessary because in the most recent budget the investment outside of infrastructure in K-12 was only $12 million. I mean we repeatedly hear about issues regarding the numbers of teachers whether it be permanent and or substitutes and a variety of issues. So I wonder how that process is actually working and we'll see what it means. All right I know one thing when my youngsters were you know, getting to the junior high and high school years, it was always a real challenge to try to get them back on a schedule conducive with getting to bed early, getting up on time, and being ready to roll uh, in the morning to go to school. One thing that's become quite popular, I heard Jerry Lynn Mackey the other day interview someone about the prevalence of the vapes, and they're everywhere, and you'll see those in the congested areas around school grounds today and throughout the school year. But one thing that I think maybe some of us get caught off guard here, is just how popular and how targeted the marketing is for these energy drinks. So while we have overtired children, they become that and overstimulated if they get on these energy drinks. And again, it's not me telling you what to do, but sometimes I think we just don't really know exactly what we're getting ourselves into with these things. It's about a $1.5 billion industry, and they are at it hardcore. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, Tumblr, the views on those platforms, 351 million users were looking at targeted marketing packages for these energy drinks. It doesn't even include TikTok, and of course, apparently, TikTok is so widely popular that you'll have the influencers, you know, ranking the drinks for taste and ranking the drinks for their packaging, the neon cans of the world and all the rest. And they absolutely are targeting our kids to consume these drinks. You know what it feels like when you drink too much coffee? You know, it's the anxiety and the inability to focus. It might feel like you're waking up for a quick moment, but very quickly the caffeine can be a bit of an overwhelming issue. It does come with some concerns regarding obesity and diabetes and the like, and it's the caffeine content. A can of Monster Energy drink contains about 160 milligrams of caffeine. That's triple the amount in a can of Coke. There's a, one other out there, Prime, has 200 milligrams. Health Canada says that the maximum is 180 milligrams under Canadian law, but we've got drinks out out there that have much more and you know full well like I know one young fella when we were growing up in that social circle of high school buddies uh, one of my son's buddies and he was on a four five six diet of these per day and you know that can't be good for anything so while they're overtired it might be one of those things when they go to the shop for the lunch break is that five hour energy bolt or a can of monster or whatever other product is out there but the energy drinks are a concern in many corners all right, so we heard yesterday, it's an announcement that we knew was coming. It's the expansion of the surgeries for joint replacements. There's a pretty long backlog. We were told at one point there was around 3,000. In the eastern region alone of the province, there's about 2,150 people on the wait list as of two weeks ago. So they expanded up into St. Anthony, and there's been some 151 procedures apparently that have taken, no, pardon me, 76 procedures uh, took place between January and July in St. Anthony. Now they've expanded to Carbonair. They look like they're going to be able to do 
do some two to 300. This year, about 150 of uh, these surgeries will take place. And of course, then there was the so-called tease out that announcement's coming in a couple of weeks for the town of Gander, and they'll be set up for these surgical procedures. So we all know the problem here. I mean, just think about the pain and the aggravation, and then not only the worsening of your knee or your hip or whatever the case may be, but it's no coincidence that when you've got a, hip, a knee bad enough to need to be replaced, then all of a sudden your hip is sore, your back is sore. It throws off your day-to-day -day operation, your ability to be mobile. So it's a good one. But inside the realm of healthcare, there's never-ending list of conversations to have. All right, we're going to get to the break sooner than later this morning. We've been telling you that we're going to make time with Jennifer Williams, who's the CEO of Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. Mrs. Williams will be on the program uh, coming up very shortly here this morning. So I've got a lot of co uh, questions for Mrs. Williams. If you'd like to pose anything in particular, the general thought is we're going to see if we can get an update. Because remember, when we're told that one of the four turbines at Muskrat Falls needed to be dismantled, and the possibility that there might be other of the three units that might need the same type of attention, we're told insurance coverage is in place so that won't impact the price tag. We haven't had much in the way of a budget update beyond told, being told there's another $16 million has to be spent to replace the faulty turnbuckles that keep the tension in the high transmission wires. So between that and a few other updates along that hydro front, it's the conversation that they're entertaining with the PUB and in-house, upwards of 20 studies, about r answering the demand. They forecast a doubling in demand here. We'll try to dig into that a little further because demand has been not what it was cracked up to be in the justification for Muskrat to begin with. So we'll talk about that. There was also the conversation that there might include a diesel turbine. Where? We don't know. At what cost? We're not sure. We're also curious what Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro's conversations look like and sound like with some of the proponents for the transition fuel that people call hydrogen. You know, there's going to be some interconnectivity concerns and questions about our electric grid. We'll see what Mrs. Williams can tell us about that. And then there's ongoing negotiations for regulatory regime and royalty issues regarding offshore winds. So all of these things, maybe a dollop of Atlantic Loop, just to try to get a clearer picture about what's going on in the world of hydro. You want to propose something on that front, you know what to do. Also, we've been trying to make time with some of the proponents of the various wind to hydrogen to ammonia plants or proposals or prospects. So this morning, Frank Davis, who's the head of Pattern Energy's Canadian operations, they've got a play out in the Port of Argentia. There were one of five companies that didn't get the green light for the next phase in these uh, issues or these proposals. But of course, their first phase doesn't require crown land. It's privately owned land out at the Port of Argentia. So we'll speak with Mr. Davis about some of the more specifics of their plan. And you know, whether it be some of the questions people have about the business model, and of course it's a private company, I don't imagine they're going to divulge a whole lot on that front, but just to pick the brain of the proponents about what they envision. And yes, some of the questions about interconnectivity, and yes, some of the questions that people are asking about the environmental assessment, and what it really means to be able to push forward with their first phase out at the Port of Argentia without Crown Land, we'll dig into that a little further. So those two conversations are coming up. And we see that there's a variety of premiers in the country, Ontario, B.C., and now here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Premier Fury, writing letters to the Bank of Canada. All right. So the premiers, when they talk about the impact of a potential increase in the interest rate, coming into today, it's at 5%, the highest it's ever been in the country since March of 2001. So we all know what the impacts are, right? You know, the Bank of Canada has played an active role in where we are and the kind of mess we're in regarding inflation. So one of the levers they have to pull, of course, is the manipulation of the interest rate. So 
nobody's wrong in saying, you know, here's what's going to happen regarding cost of living and paying your mortgage, and then mortgage uh, landhold, landlords jacking up rent to keep up with mortgage. You know all the deal. But there is a distinct issue here that needs to be considered. A former top banker has called it, you know, grandstanding. Some people might call it political theater. But what I think we should be wary of as an electorate is political interference in any form or fashion with central banks. You know, there is a distinct difference between fiscal policy and monetary policy. The prime minister has taken the task all the time when he uttered that he doesn't think about monetary policy very often, and whatever, you can bring that forward if you're so inclined. But politics and the central bank is a bad mix. It, they do not belong in the same sentence. Yes, we can have politicians comment on what they think the Bank of Canada is doing and the results on the ground and the impacts on everyday Canadians and cost of living issues. Yes. But I think there's a line where we've got to hope politicians kind of steer clear of it. You know, any sort of political influence, or people might call it interference, or openly challenging the Bank of Canada to do one thing or another, is probably okay in some people's ears, but in the big scheme of things, regardless of the party you support, I think we should hope that that stops, personally. And if you want to take it on, we can do it. And I was asked yesterday why we didn't mention the fact that two of the high-profile leaders or organizers of the protest convoy that was in the streets of Ottawa for weeks, Tamara Leach and uh, Chris Barber, their criminal trials began yesterday in Ottawa bunch of court housekeeping matters were attended to yesterday. They're charged with mischief, obstructing police, counseling others to commit mischief and intimidation. It gets a lot of political rhetoric uh, associated with the charges and the fact that they are in the courts. And if that's something of interest to you on the national or the federal front, we can do it. And I, w- I will admit that I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around the story that comes from one of the banks saying that the country has undercounted non-permanent residents to the tune of maybe one million people. And what impact that has on our personal GDP numbers. For starters, I'm not exactly sure how they arrived at that number, but when the government seemingly can't keep an accurate headcount of newcomers, it does have a widespread impact because data is key. Information is power. If we don't know exactly how many people are here, it's hard to devise public policy to know exactly what needs to be attended to, whether it be for housing, health care, daycare, whatever the case may be, but that's a bizarre story. Anyway, we're on Twitter. That's also bizarre. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.vocm.com. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? When we come back, Jennifer Williams will kick off the program. Then we'll be speaking with Frank Davis from Pattern Energy, and, of course, then we'll be speaking with you, and the topic is up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. As advertised, join us on line number one is the CEO of Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. That's Jennifer Williams. Good morning, Mrs. Williams. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. We want to get into the demand, the doubling of demand, and what's going to be done in some of the 20 studies. But I'd like to start because, you know, inherently, Muskrat will have a relationship with any demand and the provision of supply. So when we were last told that one of the four units at Muskrat had to be dismantled and rebuilt, there was the potential for whatever the problem was with that unit to have impacted or infected another unit or all of the units. What's the update? Mm-hmm. So the vibration issue that we um, are witnessing on Unit 2, which I will say the unit is actually fully available, so I don't want folks to think that we're not able to operate that unit. It actually has been able to operate at its full capacity. It just has a certain part of the operating range that it, it has vibration, and so we don't operate it there. So I want to be really clear about that. The unit has been operating. 
Um, and the, when we started to witness that vibration, um, it was very early in the operation of the unit. Those, that unit has been in, I think, for almost two years now, as, as have the other units. Um, we're not seeing any of those characteristic characteristics in the other units. So, um, you know, we're always operating out of an abundance of caution and say, you know, it could at some point be an issue there, but we haven't seen any indication at all that that mechanism or that um, that characteristic that's causing the vibration is in the other units. I don't have an engineering background, but in units like that, a vibration long term has the real possibility of uh, causing a, uh, a lot of downtime. So before we're fully reliant on muskrat, whatever that time might be, is the plan here to just continue to monitor or is it to see that the company that installed it to dismantle it put it back together do away with the vibration so it's fully reliable correct yes so again at, at the op, at the operating range which we're operating it there is no vibration so so i guess the risk that you're you're, you're talking about there i think that's a valid understand question if you are continuing to operate in that vibrating mode but we're not so we're really really clear about that but the intention is on a long-term basis is uh to dismantle the unit and and to have the as you mentioned the original company come in and do the corrective work there and put it back in service when we talk about reliability of supply even if we hear from Liberty Consulting, who's done pretty good work here in present, presenting some of their risk evaluations to the PUB. They talk about whether it be Labrador Island Link or across the Long Range Mountains, because this is a transmission project as much as it is about generating electricity. They talk about the possibility for 30-day brownouts or blackouts, rolling 45-day blackouts or brownouts. When we talk about that big hypothetical and worst-case scenario, what exactly is the plan? So that is something that any utility would have to plan for, you know, a catastrophic loss of any major component of their system. So we're obviously um, examining if that, like you said, that sort of black swan event were to occur, what does that look like for us as a province? And then you have to say, okay, if I want to um, actually build to um, address that potential black swan event, what would that look like? So the plan right now is to make sure that we analyze what that um, could look like if we wanted to build something else, get that in front of the regulator. We're actually, we've been doing this for several years already. Um, get all that information from the regulator and then as, as, a, as a utility with the oversight and the input from the regulator and all the interveners, come to a decision on what's right for the province with regards to um, having something in place in that, um, that black swan Certainly other utilities around the world would have to deal with these types of worst-case scenarios and planning for, but is it not a little bit different for through the long-range mountains? Even when we talked about the time it took to get in to replace faulty turnbuckles and the mm -hmm. rugged and remote location and the terrain that the long-range mountains presents, does that not make it a bit more complicated than other utilities might have to deal with, say, coming across the prairies or in Ontario or the province of Nova Scotia? It seems to me it would be a little bit more difficult. Well, you know, I've only ever worked for utility in this province, and I think we do have definitely, um, I call it extreme um, weather. I would suggest that you look in Quebec. They've got pretty extreme weather. They've had some pretty significant outages. A lot of other areas of, of the world would have their own extreme scenarios. So um, I don't want to say that we're the worst with regards to any kind of weather pattern or, or risks that we have because we can't say that, right? I mean, any utility would say, no, no, you don't know what it's like operating in our area. This is our extreme situation. So, um, I mean, Texas, look down in Texas. They have extreme um, weather with regards to the opposite um, 
um, you know, the heat and they have to deal with and, and there's, you know, major risks associated with that. However, your point is well taken, is that we definitely have um, extreme weather and as climate changes, um, we have to make sure that we continually evolve our existing assets, both new and old, and determine do we need um, hardening of those assets as we get experience with them or as the climate changes, and what should we do to ensure that we can't provide for reliable service. And, of course, Texas is an interesting case study, given the fact they've isolated themselves from the rest of the national grid. So when something mm-hmm. happens in Texas, they are left to their own accord to try to deal with it. Correct. Uh, last time we heard... Uh, you know, mention of rate mitigation, which is a bit of a moving target in many people's minds. The last one was $5.2 billion, $3.2 associated with Hibernia, an extension of the loan guarantee to a billion, a loan of a billion dollars. The Apparently the I's weren't dotted and the T's weren't crossed the last time I heard from you. Is that finalized and in place? Yes. So I, I would suggest that it's really two steps. So the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted for getting a cult, the new financing structure in place. What is the complicated part that we're really actually, and I know i got to keep saying this, but it is very complicated, um, working with government on the final steps of how does that financing structure make its way into rates. And um, that can be done in a, in a host of different ways that can have, um, you know, important accounting implications for how everything gets analyzed for the long term. So we're very close to final with that. And uh, what that will look like then for customers is that we would file a general rate application. So we'll finalize those, we we'll call it phase two, the part of how it actually impacts rates. We'll finalize that with government. We will then um, uh, put that into a general rate application, and that will take us um, about nine months after we finalize the um, the actual plan with government because there's a whole host of um you know, called schedules that go into an application. Um, And that would be then, so we're well into 2024. So customers won't see a material difference at all with regards to rate mitigation until uh, until next year when we actually file the application with the regulator. And then it has to go through um, a general rate application process, which is quite lengthy. Insofar as supply, once more, we're told that we've been able to satisfy our contractual obligations with Nova Scotia Power or Amera on the other side of the maritime link. How has how how pardon me how have we done that, and does that have an implication for rates or supply here? Um, no, so um, I'm not sure if I might ask you to pose your question again to make sure I understand it. Okay, I for their $1.5 billion investment, which came in on time and on budget, there was that we, we, we owe them somewhere, I think the number is maybe 22% of the firm output from Muskrat. But of course, with Muskrat not operating on the schedule that was once on paper, how have we satisfied our contract with the mayor? Are they getting all the power that is part of the contract? If so, how? Okay, sorry, I understand it now. Thanks for that. Um, Yeah, basically is um, over the course of a year, and then we take what we owe them on a yearly basis, and then you translate that back, and they have expectations on a daily basis of what that um, that commitment looks like. And so um, right now we are meeting our commitments to Nova Scotia. Um, We had started our commitments to them, I think it was in the, the late summer, early fall of 2021, and in those early months, the LIL wasn't functioning um, the way it needed to be for us to meet those early commitments to Nova Scotia. But we're in our catch-up mode now, and we're making really good progress on what we are catching up, but we're also actually meeting our delivery. So we're in, in this current period over-delivering. So giving them another commitment and catching up on what we under-delivered in those first few months. Can we consider the Labrador Island Link fully ready to go, or does that require the one more 900 megawatt test to see if any of these software glitches have been addressed by G? 
So there's a fair bit of, um, I'm going to say confusion um, about this. And this is why, you know, we, we try to simplify things sometimes when we talk about them, but that probably doesn't help. Um, and I want to be really clear that the, the project from a project financing um, perspective is officially commissioned. And so when we, we mentioned that back in April, that it's commissioned, it absolutely is commissioned. Um, and you know, with our, our project partners, the federal government, all of those aspects, it's commissioned. And that certainly included um, sign-off on the technical aspects of the project. And so we did demonstrate the 700-megawatt test. And if you, if you chat with the engineers, um, there is nothing new in the software at 900 megawatts that you'd have to test that you did not test at 700. So that's why um, all of the folks who are very close to this project um, are able to attest that this project is commissioned. However, we do understand that from a reliability perspective, um, there would be concern with folks that would want to see it tested first at 900 megawatts before you run it at 900 megawatts. So what we have committed is to actually doing the test at 900, even though there's nothing new we're going to test. We're basically just going to run it up there on a very planful basis. So um, we're going to do that in this winter, but, you know, it's essentially all, everything has been tested as is. I've, I've always been a little bit confused with the 900 number. So 900, when we're told that Muskrat is 824 megawatts max, and I don't mm -hmm. even know if that can actually make its way all the way to Soldier's Pond, for instance, and or across the Maritime Link. So would a 900 megawatt test include recall power, say, from the upper church? Or where does the additional megawatts come from? Yes, that's correct. If you had to, um, and you're right. So you're you're absolutely right that you know to do that test, we are going to have additional power from Labrador brought down, um, and that is really in an incredibly emergency situation that you would actually run it at that because then we have a lot of generation on the island um, that you know that you would have in service at any point in time, um, and uh, you're also right that you do lose a number of megawatts um, of delivery from Muskrat to Soldiers Pond as well. Sticking with the Upper Churchill for a second, you know, there's been a lot of what I've called, maybe unfairly so, but I'll stick with it, you know, it was a bit of a political branding exercise, the whole Atlantic Loop. Then when the most recent federal budget, we weren't mentioned, that was, we were told it was an oversight. Now the federal government potentially going to pay for two-thirds of the maybe $6.5 billion cost, but I still don't really know anything about it. Who builds it? Who manages it? Who manages it? Is it Hydro-Quebec at the top of the chain as per usual? Or what can you tell us about wherever we are with this Atlantic Loop? Um, you know, obviously, we have uh, a bit of an observing role, and we're we're watching all all the um, the developments as as they move along with regards to that project. Um, that project currently, as is being contemplated, is a very much a step one, which is transmission. And then the obvious question for anybody who's paying attention there is, well, where's the supply coming from? And, you know, in a world five or 10 years ago, when um, electrification wasn't as significant, um, you know, in our society, um, perhaps there was some extra that any jurisdiction could have given to uh, Nova Scotia. But pretty much every utility now with regards to electrification has got to build uh, significantly to address electrification in their jurisdiction. So the question going back to the Atlantic Loop is, okay, so transmission needs to be built. Obviously, that would have to be the case. Um, but then it's the supply of the electricity. So where's that going to come from? This province obviously has significant resources that um, that we will never need all of it. We are definitely going to need a lot more than what we currently have. Um, but, you know, we're certainly um, open to conversations about uh, supply in to other jurisdictions. Transmission, I mean, just look at the state 
state of Maine, they had a public referendum, shot down the expansion of the transmission. The courts got involved. There's going to be, I think that's going to be the stumbling block here, is whether or not the northeastern United States is willing to see the transmission capacity build, because there's lots of power. It's how do you get it to market. Uh, last one, do you have, is it possible to get a 2041 update, or are you even involved in that conversation? Uh, yes, you are. I think you're on the committee. I am involved, and no, I can't give you an update on that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Let's move a little further across the island now. Issues at Soldiers Pond, synchronous condensers and otherwise, has that been settled or solved? I haven't heard an update that says that that is fully commissioned and the technical sign-off is in place. Yeah, no, um, synchronous condensers are running uh, quite well, um, so we continue to engage with uh, General Electric on, on watching various um, solutions that they're putting in place to address the issues that we had seen there. Um, we, again, in, in, we do a lot of our reporting appropriately, uh, very much in front of the regulator, and so we're, we're you know, continually giving updates on the status of uh, both the project as well as all of our old existing assets. And, you know, when you're indicating that there's, okay, here's uh, something that we're monitoring in, in a certain asset, you say, here's what could be the outcome. But you're still looking for the optimal um, solution for anything that you, you come across. So right now, with regards to the synchronous condensers, we are, um, you know, implementing various solutions to deal with the issues that we saw out there, and, and they're actually going quite well. Um, but uh, I can't remember when the last update was that we gave to the Public Utilities Board um, on the synchronous condensers, but uh, that's reported on fairly quickly. I want to say every quarter, Patty. It could be every every month. I, the, the, they come to me for review once in a while. Um, I can't remember when the last one was. Precisely how are we looking at the demand doubling for electricity in the province? I know there's going to be more electric vehicles. There's going to be people moving away from heating their home with oil and what have you, but what are you using there specifically or precisely? Because when we talked about demand as a justification for Muskrat, which I know is a project you inherited, the demand numbers really weren't real. So how are we using those to double in demand numbers today? Right. So um, I think the difference that um, from that point in time, and yeah, I, I, I came here in 2014. So, you know, this was obviously well underway. So I don't, um, I didn't delve too much into the, that, those demand pieces because we're very much um, taking the inputs from a demand and forecast perspective. And all of this is being put to the regulator and the interveners for their review and questioning. Um, so I just want to, you know, draw that very clear, that clear distinction that all of the assumptions that we're making is getting put to the regulator um, about on a yearly basis. Any time we see new economic indicators changing, we have to update our forecast. And the difference from, say, a dozen years ago to today is electrification. And, and it really is obviously arising from climate change and the public policy associated with that. Um, so, you know, the idea is before that it was probably more economic indicators only. For example, you know, where is, you know, various um, mining industry, oil and gas industry going to go with regards to demand and this province, you have very different public policy, um, uh, announced public policy that would materially change um, the forecast. And the other component, too, when we develop our forecasts that indicate, um, say, about a doubling um, by 2050. Um, every other utility is seeing the exact same thing, um, and um, it's important to know that we we have consultants that are like national level consultants that basically, for example, develop our our EV forecast uptake for us. Dunsky is our consultant, um, well used across the country. Um, both Austin Newfound Power use them to you know help understand where are things going with regards to EV uptake. And if you wait till it's here, it's too late, right? So that's when you're in the point where um, you know you're you are going to have you know a lack 
lack of power available for these kinds of things. So you have to hit, take a forecast and, and, and choose to build on that basis. But, um, you know, you've got the oil to electric. I think you mentioned at the beginning there um, in homes that are converting. Um, and those are, again, announced public policies and, and costs that are going there. And that's, you know, uh, puts a lot of extra load on the system. You've got cars, new homes, um, economic just indicators from the provinces and other input. We get all of these inputs form a new forecast and it goes into the regulator for examination and significant scrutiny. That's the role of the regulators to scrutinize the assumptions that, that we uh, that we make. Does the doubling of supply mean we have to add transmission capacity as well or do we have the wires in place to, to deal with the increased supply? You know, depending on where the supply shows up, we would absolutely have to, over time, expand our our transmission capacity for sure. But again, depending on where the load shows up. So, for example, you might get, a, you know, one of the things that um, some of your listeners will probably be familiar with is, you know, we're examining um, Lab West. And, you know, if some load was to increase there, that absolutely would need, uh, you know, some transmission expansion. Um, if we have, you know, um, significant growth on the Avalon, obviously we would need some transmission expansion. Why what, um, what folks will see, though, you know, we're talking about for the coming decades, not for the coming few years. So, you know, what we will see is a series of decisions. So we'll make a first decision and then we'll have new information come and we'll evolve um, our assumptions at that time. Then eventually make another decision, then another decision. So, you know, I think we will have transmission expansion over time and we will certainly have generation supply as well. Last area. So what can you tell us about conversations between NL Hydro and any of the proponents for the wind to hydrogen to ammonia? because they may have a need to access our grid. They may have a need to sell back to our grid in the form of, I guess, net metering in general terms, excess power generated at their wind turbines. What does that look like? What can you tell us? Because that interconnectivity may indeed impact my rates. Absolutely. So that that um, that statement there, I think it's, it's a valid uh, question and concern to have. Um, however, it's been made very clear that um, generally, if somebody is going to draw a major system addition or a major system upgrade, um, they're going to pay for it. So if we have, you know, a, a proponent um, that says, well, I want to do this to the system, and then the, I'll call the system that everybody shares has to have some major investment in it, the proponent that caused that will pay for it. So, you know, we are working with the premise that, that I'll call the rest of the customers on the system, the existing system, will be protected. Um, and so what that has meant with regards to the evolution, I think, of some of the proposals of the various proponents, um, you know, when they would, uh, you know, come and say, hey, we would like a lot of firm power. And then we say, okay, well, it's going to take us a number of years to get that for you because we don't have that currently available and you will also have to pay for it. Um, you know, various business proposals evolve. And so at this point, um, for the folks that have most recently um, passed through uh, the Crown Land uh, process, because it's not actually, as you probably would have reported, it's not that it doesn't mean they have Crown Land, but they're now allowed to apply for Crown Land. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of firm power being sought is very small. So, um, and, and I think there's two aspects to how this could interplay with our system. Um, one is how much firm power they would like to use to operate, just like any customer might. And But at this point, it's not a significant amount of firm power. And we will um, help them um, analyze their business plan, not help them analyze their business plan, but feed into their business plan by giving them answers to their questions. But the other piece, um, which I think is one of the concerns I think that you're, that you're getting at, is when you then um, build a very big wind farm and you interconnect it, potentially, 
in some way to our system so that let's, for example, say that that's something goes wrong on their wind farm and some piece of equipment trips, just like it does in any, you know, aspect of any, um, you know, distribution type system. How does that impact the rest of um, us as customers? And what protections, therefore, equipment do we need to put in place to protect it? So we have to do... Um, analysis to understand how do all these systems connect with us if they're going to connect and then what does that look like in our system and any of those type costs would not be costs that the customers would have to bear they would be costs that the proponent will have to bear comforting uh last one why consider diesel when we talk about decommissioning hardware by 2030 as opposed to maybe hydrogen that'll be produced here we think or natural gas or anything else because when we talk about net zero emissions on the grid or what have you adding diesel to replace hollywood seems counterintuitive why consider diesel Right. So uh, last week, I think that there was definitely a report out there that that gave more weight to an analysis that we were doing um, as as almost like a fait accompli that it was it was absolutely happening. Um, I think you mentioned it in your lead in there. We are doing I don't know ten or twenty different studies to fill out the analysis record on what should be the best option for us to um, respond to the electrification and the reliability questions that we're answering. Um, one of them was if you were to build gas turbines, is it even feasible? And so that was the study that got discussed that, you know, we're, we're contemplating this and we're contemplating it to make sure we have answered the question because I don't think customers would be happy with us if we latched onto one idea only and then barreled down a road, right? We are absolutely looking at all viable options. So when it comes to diesel, um, right now, if we need um, supply sooner or if we want some questions answered or some extra security with regards to reliability, um, and if we have put in, say, a, a, a gas turbine that currently burns fossil fuels, we absolutely, and this didn't uh, make it very prominent, but this has absolutely been our, our position, is that we would put something in that can indeed transition to renewable fuels. So for folks to... Um, put a lot of uh, thinking into the fact that, okay, you're going to put in something that burns diesel today and that's you're committed to that for the next 30, 40 years, that absolutely is not the case. Our intention would be as, as these fuels become available, um, we would make sure that we have the ability to transition to those fuels as well. So that has long been our position and uh, it's just one of those things that probably gets a bit lost in some of the detail, but I have to be very clear about that, um, that you know we are absolutely looking at alternative fuels as well it's just they don't exist in a reliable fashion today. So we can't make that decision today. Any possibility to expand net metering for the uh, individual rate payer? Because some people might want to put solar panels on the cabin and sell back the power to the grid like some of these big uh, uh, industries may do. But, of course, that comes with complications for demand uh, forecast. So is there any opportunity for net metering to expand in this province? Um, I'll, I'll use the word uh, maybe demand response uh, interchangeably, even though net metering, I think, is, is I know you're talking about something very specific. Yep. I think that, um, you know, sort of distributed generation does play a role for sure um, and, and in an expanded fashion um, here. Um, some people are doing it because they have a, a, a personal value, and I really admire that. Um, obviously, for some, it's costly, but some people are choosing to do that, again, as a personal value. Some people think, I'm going to stay in this house for a long time. The payback is there. So I do think that distributed generation and solutions that are you know, um, owned by individuals absolutely plays a part. I believe, Patty, I'm, I'm doing a bit of math on the stand as they stay here. We do have um, uh, an existing cap on the amount that 
However, there's, it's nowhere near, people are, haven't, haven't availed of it fully yet, right? So we're nowhere even near the utilization of the cap. So I would suggest to you that, uh, and it's a small cap, I think it's like five megawatts or something, it's really, really small. Um, I think if we were, if, if, we, if we saw that that demand and interest was there and it was the right tool to use, um, because it's the right tool to supply um, customers, then I think, you know, it would be a fairly um, simple conversation to have with the regulator to implement um, a much larger cap there. But that's, that's manageable fully. I uh, really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much, Mrs. Williams. Oh, you don't need to call me Mrs. Williams. Jennifer, please. Thank you, Jennifer. Take care. Thanks, Jen. Okay, okay, bye-bye. Jennifer Williams is the CEO of NL Hydro. Let's take a break. When we come back, Frank Davis, Pattern Energy Assistant VP and Head of Canadian Operations. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to Frank Davis. He's the Assistant VP at Pattern Energy and the Canadian Head of uh, Operations. Uh, good morning, Frank. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Appreciate the patience. Thank you very much. It was a great discussion with uh, Jennifer Williams. There's a lot on the hydro table, that's for sure. So I've I've read a bit about the company, and you've got a lot of wind operations and some solar operations and some uh, uh, transmission projects around the world. How did your relationship with the Port of Argentia come to be? Well, you know, Pattern is we're one of the renewable energy leaders in Canada. Um, we put a dozen wind farms um, in the country. We operate one of the largest wind fleets in, in Ontario. Um, we've been building here since uh, 2011 uh, when I joined the company. The wind industry in general, and certainly Pattern, we've always been interested in the wonderful, spectacular wind resource that exists on, on Canada's east coast. Um, we, we came down to Newfoundland in, in 2014 or so to uh, to meet with some some hydro representatives and so on. And, and at the time, of course, the province was uh, focused on, on Muskrat Falls development and uh, didn't really indicate an open window for wind development, to say the least. Um, so it's always been on our radar um, as a place that could you know represent a you know for the Canadian industry in general a great place to develop harsh um, utility scale wind. So, you know, a couple of years ago, when particularly in Europe, we saw increases in demand signals for green fuels. So this refers to, you know, fuel products, um, essentially using uh, hydrogen as a feedstock. Demand for those green fuels um, produced with renewable energy, um, enabling sectors to decarbonize, you know, across the economy. It became clear that you know Canada's east coast, in particular Newfoundland and Labrador, you know could be uh, an ideal place to, to develop projects like this at scale. Um, you know, clearly it, it, it's not the easiest or cheapest place to build, uh, but certainly on the basis of the of the wind resource that's there, um, the available land and, and existing infrastructure, as well as of course you know the policy support and legislative support. You know, we're seeing emerge at, at both the federal and provincial level. Uh, it makes it a place of interest. And of course, as a side item, you know, I grew up in Newfoundland. I grew up in, in St. John's, went to Brother Rice High School, went to Memorial. So certainly uh, on a personal level, it, it's always been on my radar that this is certainly a place where we should dig in and take a good look. Go Celtics. Um, so as one of five companies that didn't make it through, now you can indeed get back in with the application process for future use of Crown Land. Have you been debriefed as to why you were not one of the four that moved through? Uh, we have not yet received a, a specific technical debrief. I'm, I'm told um, by IET that that is, uh, is scheduled. So obviously, we look forward to that dialogue. Um, but really, you know, Patty, I, I think the, the core reason when it comes to pattern is that uh, the project that we have been developing um, for the past year or so, um, both, you know, consulting with the local community and businesses out, out in Placentia Bay, 
running a very detailed, we believe, industry-leading environmental assessment program, um, a wind resource assessment program, engineering studies, et cetera. All of that work uh, was pertaining to a project solely on private land at the Port of Argentia, so not relying on Crown land. So I think the problem is looked at our said, look pattern. It looks like you guys have a, a project you can move on and something that's feasible. So why don't you do that and uh, get that up and running, and then we'll see if you need crown land later. Obviously, the other proponents that that have uh, received um, crown land letters, um, you know, they they physically need crown land to get their projects built. That's not the case with pattern, and it's not the case with the land resource and assets that are available at the Port of Argentia. So um, that that I think is a differentiating factor when it comes to uh, pattern project out there. 6,000 hectares of Portland, 300 megawatt wind farm, and of course hydrogen and ammonia plant and the export facility. What's the source of water you're using? Great question. Um, obviously, that's a big point of, uh, of analysis on, on all these projects. Um, Newfoundland is a bit advantage because we are generally um, long on, on freshwater resources, unlike other places in the world that are far more challenged and need to think about building big, heavy infrastructure like desalination plants and so on. So th- that was another reason to get back to the first question, why you know Newfoundland and Labrador is at the top of the list in terms of, of interesting places to, to develop these projects. For our project, uh, the water usage we're modeling for our phase one is relatively, I, I don't want to say small, it's a very significant amount of water, but you know, compared with a lot of other industrial uses out there, we think it's, it's doable and sustainable. Uh, so the source of water um, primarily would be tied to water resources that are right there on the Argentia backlands. Um, Obviously, the town of Placentia has um, municipal water supply infrastructure up and running that is drawing upon some of these uh, water reservoirs to, to supply the, the town with their, their daily water needs. So essentially what we would do is we would simply build upon and tie into that infrastructure, uh, bring the water down to the port. Now, the good news is uh, that infrastructure is already in place. And it's being used uh, right now uh, by Synovus uh, who are building the extraordinarily large and impressive uh, wellhead project uh, right there at the port. Um, and it's interesting, you know, our daily water usage for our phase one project is actually on most days less than uh, the, the water usage that would be allocated to that very large concrete project down there. So um, it's a good question. It does require obviously working with municipal officials, working with all the experts uh, to ensure that water usage is, uh, is first of all, properly understood, planned, and ultimately sustainable for the long term, because these aren't two, three, four-year projects. These are 20, 25-year projects. So it's a very important thing that all projects properly model and and consult, I think, with their local communities. Water, an extremely precious resource worldwide. Newfoundland and Labrador would be attractive. You know, it's windy. We've got the land, the water, the deep-sea ports, and proximity to market. But on the proximity concern... Tell us a bit more about the business model here, because we know there will be a thirst for the green hydrogen shipped as ammonia. But, you know, what's the concern with maybe developers closer to, for instance, Germany, who would be able to maybe less energy loss because of the distance to have to transmit, maybe a lower cost given the construction costs and the proximity to the German market. So how does that get factored in? Because in essence, I am involved as a federal taxpayer. There's huge tax credits available, and this may be, be might indeed be a boon with jobs and ro- royalties and what have you, but give us an idea how that market works. And number one, how do you sell it? Is this sold by the ton, or how does ammonia even get sold on the market? 
Yeah, going great question. Right now, the ammonia market is it's really robust globally. Um, right now, it's about 180 million tons of ammonia produced uh, in the world um, each year. Uh, most of that uh, is actually produced by, you guessed it, Russia. Um, they're they're the world's top ammonia producer, um, and most of up until uh, quite recently, most of Europe's ammonia came directly from Russia. Not surprisingly. Um, of that 180 million, about 20 million tons of ammonia uh, is placed on vessels and moved around the world right now in an active trade. So there's an active open commodity market for ammonia today. All of that ammonia is made from hydrogen derived from natural gas. So it's uh, essentially when, when that process occurs, you have carbon emissions. And you know, when you stack up all that global ammonia, it results in actually a fairly significant um, piece of the global carbon emission picture. Um, you know, obviously cars, trucks, large-scale transportation is by far the largest emission source globally, uh, but ammonia itself uh, makes up about 2% of global emissions. So it, it's it's not insignificant, and it's a thing I think that countries globally are looking to address um, by putting in these various policy levers on, on every side of the globe. So when we look at approaching a market like the EU, uh, who are telling the world, look, we, we have enormous demand, not only for green ammonia, but for a lot of different um, fuels that use hydrogen as a feedstock, um, the the share demand and the share volume that Europe is projecting, not only Europe, but also countries like Korea and Japan, who are also projecting huge amounts of imports would, would dwarf you know, current trade, um, they need more than their domestic market can produce. Um, you know, simply all, all of the off acres and, and sort of market partners we, we are talking to of course, they have plans to domestically produce, you know, as best they can. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of uh, offshore wind um, built and operating in the North Sea uh, and, and the Baltic Sea area. All of that will continue to get built, obviously, and, and, and begin to take a dent in this demand. But it, it won't come close. Very clearly, Europe is looking outward for um, politically stable, low-cost, competitive jurisdictions to feed this overall picture that they're trying to put together. It is very important for um, for everyone to understand, uh, particularly Newfoundland and Labrador, um, that you, know, you can do this anywhere in the world. <laughs> anywhere you have wind or sun or, or reliable, high-capacity renewable energy and a water source, you can make green hydrogen. Um, so it, it points to the competitiveness uh, of this industry, and, and that is coming down simply to cost to produce. We need to be able to show the world um, in, in Canada that we can produce green hydrogen at a cost that's competitive with um, the nearest low-cost jurisdiction. But we also need to ensure that we can show the projects, show, show the, the customers and off-takers and markets that we have project execution certainty. The projects we're developing can get built, they can get permitted, and they can get delivered to market. So that's why I think you're hearing about this hydrogen race, uh, and I put that in, in, in soft quotations. Um, races are always dangerous when you're dealing with uh, large uh, electrical infrastructure like this, but it, it is um, a, a certainly pacing item to get these projects permitted into market um, quickly so we can establish those market relationships and sort of scale this up in the long term. Um, so maybe a bit more on your question, you know, the, the buyers we're talking to are a mix of direct end users, so uh, large fertilizer producers, for example. Uh, they rely on massive amounts of ammonia for their process. So they're looking to switch from gray to green because they're going to get hit with penalties in the European Union uh, if they fail to do so. So they're piecing together supply directly into their factories in Europe uh, with our green ammonia. 
There's also commodity traders that hold books of customers um, deep into the into the supply and value chain in Europe. All sorts of uh, industrial chemical end users deal with a, a large commodity trader uh, to find them, you know, competitively priced ammonia. So that that's sort of the, the main type of off taker that we're we're talking to. And typically, uh, ammonia is priced and sold uh, by the ton globally. So that's that's how you'll hear it priced. It's priced in U.S. dollars per ton. And we would be looking to do all of the Newfoundland projects, I believe, would be looking to do a, a trade, uh, essentially what they called FOB, which is a trade right, right at our dock of export. Uh, the, the buyer would, would show up with a shipping company, um, pick up the product, and fold it into sort of this global movement and supply of ammonia that we see happening around the world. And I mean, cost of production green, a bit more expensive than other color-labeled hydrogen products uh, and eventually ammonia. Uh, I know this is a complicated question, but I'm really out of time, so hopefully there's a very short or yes or no answer. Is Pattern going to proceed with simply an MOU in place, or will it be what we refer to as the power purchase agreements and real contractual obligations on the end user before you proceed and, and put up one turbine? And certainly, any any renewable projects um, like this, unless there's a very reliable, predictable merchant market to sell into, a project would need a binding uptake agreement in order to essentially, you know, secure the, the final construction financing and uh, and begin construction. So I think that's very much a yes. We will be working toward binding long-term offtake agreements with the, the, the best buyers we can find in Europe and beyond to support the project. Appreciate the time this morning, Frank. Take care. Bye bye. That's Frank Davis. He's the head of Canadian operations for Pattern Energy. Let's take a break for the news, guys. When we come back, Greg's in the queue to talk about his son and back to school and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air. Yes, sir. I got a young fellow. He's ADHD. He graduated from school there in June all by himself because I wasn't allowed in school. He did, uh, and I, I signed a paper for him to get an assessment done on him on, in January, and just before school closed, the school board told me that there was a six-month delay. They couldn't do the assessment. And now I've been phoning the minister's office and for not getting no satisfaction, and, that, and the school board phoned me yesterday. I'm talking to that one in the school board about the letter that I sent. I sent uh, uh, I, every now and then I sent a letter around, and that. But she didn't want to talk about the letter. She wanted to know what Gregory going back to school. But he he got on the phone himself and he told her that he wasn't going back to this school because of the way he was treated. And and that, and he would go back to school, but not here. But they told me that he got to go to this school. He got to register at this school in order to get an assessment done. And they don't know when it will be done at no time. But I mentioned about putting him in the school in port bass and they said no. Not really, because they didn't think port bass would take him. And I told her that they would have their mouths going to keep him out of it. It might be better for him to go to Fort Bass, but it would cost me a lot of money to get him in there, to, to keep him in there. But he don't want to go to this school because the way he's been treated. And that's how bad it is in this system. And so where is the school that you would like him to go to? Well, the school he went, he went to in the Cadre Valley. But I said he, he would go to Port Bass. But no, they don't want him to go to Port of Bass. They want him to go here. 
and he don't want to go here because the way he was being treated by the school. Okay. I, I put a logbook on him. We were told back when he started school to put a logbook on him. We put a logbook on him, and there was nothing for nothing coming in logbooks really about his behavior. That's what the logbooks were for. But when I found that when they put paper uh, paperwork they, they were doing, they used to pass it around the paper, the table, and the teachers and them that were working with Gregory would sign that paper, and me or his mother would sign the paper. But when I discovered that in 2016, what they had wrote on the paper after we signed them, he was running away and everything. He ran away in February 29th. That wasn't a, a, a leap year. And stuff like that. Lies. And they won't talk about it. No. They don't want to hear nothing like that. This is what he's been treated with. And then when I went to phone calls going to child protection about us. And child protection going to the school to see him and coming to see me. And when I found out that who, who reported... He, uh, the young fellow that was working at the recycling center that was ADHD, there was a school teacher who was, was went there at closing time, and I was there to pick up that young fellow to take him home, and he took the bags from the, uh, the teacher and put them in the building. She went to the principal and told the principal something, whatever, but the principal phoned uh, when he went to get his check. The one that gave him his check told him that they had a report on him because he was rude. This is how these people at their school teach, uh, treats the students and other people with ADHD. It's unbelievable. So we know that, you know, inside the world of inclusive education, it can't be just everyone in the same building. That's not inclusive. It's all the supports and the, the way children are treated, regardless if they're on the spectrum, have ADHD, other behavioral issues. I understand your point. So having to go back to school for some said assessment. In order to get an assessment done, he got to go back to school. No. Okay. Is, in the long run, this assessment a good thing for your son, though, to make sure that we understand exactly where he is and what he needs? There's nothing being done with him. There's nothing. They, don't, they, they, they didn't do nothing with him. In September the 12th, this past year, well, I had a note come in the logbook wondering what he was going to do when he was finished school and how could they help. And I put back to them that he didn't know and all I could get out of him was, I don't know, I don't know. And you know, they never tried to do anything to help him, nothing. And I wasn't allowed in school, I, and they didn't, there was no contact with me from the school at all. They, uh, the last number of years, there were no meetings with me or nothing. They didn't want, because of what they, the reports that were going to the child protection and everything. And what I said, I went in one day to sign him out to take him across the road to the restaurant, and I asked the question. And the one I asked the question to took off out of the office, and I went out in the corridor, and I said something, and she answered me back. And then I get the letter from the school board kicking me out. I got a letter from the school kicking me out of the school. I wasn't allowed back in. That's how bad they were at that school. And, 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 and that's the way they did. And the, the, Thursday there last week, the vice principal he was, he phoned to see if Gregory was going back to school. And, and, and I said, 
You folks phoned me the 1st of June because he phoned me to keep Gregory home every school, every the school, so he could find out what happened that day in the classroom or wherever. He never phoned me back. And I told him the other day, that he, I said, you never phoned me back. He said, I did. I said, you're, you're a lawyer. And I hung up on him. That's what they want to do, lie. And that's all they can do. That's all they know. And I think the, the more lawyers they taste, the bigger, bigger their check is. I don't know any relationship uh, between the two, but it's unfortunate that that's the way your child has been treated and the inability for you to get answers. Uh, Greg, I appreciate the time. Hopefully the assessment you, can you get called out, You called Scott Reed over the open line for me one year. You know I never did get any help from him. I remember the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, then. Thank you. Take care of yourself, Greg. All right. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, so, obviously, there was a lot in the first hour regarding some big issues with Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. Uh, good discussion with Frank Davis regarding pattern energy, just to get a better understanding about exactly what the thoughts are behind the business model, impact, source of water, all the rest of it. And if you want to chime in and pick up where they left off, or... You have some co- uh, questions or ongoing concerns about anything you heard from Jennifer Williams or from Frank Davis. Whatever's on your mind, we can talk about it after this. If you're in the St. John's metro region, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Well, there was one issue, and an email flow uh, came in my inbox during my conversation with Jennifer Williams at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, and it's something that we didn't get to. And there's a lot of emails this morning, so I just didn't see it in time. But it's a story regarding Beothic Lake. And we, we've heard the stories about the rising uh, water levels in Beothic Lake. And, of course, it was one of the last refuge for the Beothic as they were trying to escape the Europeans that were flooding into the province. So this is about some of the artifacts that may indeed have been lost. Some are already uh, in in the water, in the lake itself, and the water is brushing up against maybe some of the walls of a Beothic dwelling that was discovered back in 2016. So yes, Beothic Lake actually doubles as a hydroelectric reservoir, and if I had seen it and had the time, I absolutely would have broached the conversation with Miss Williams because... You know, if we have a uh, lake being used as a reservoir, then obviously there's some manipulation of water levels that can indeed be achieved. You know, that's just nature of the beast when we have any of those setups in place. So I apologize to that particular listener who sent along that email. I didn't see it in time, but I will indeed follow up with Hydro to see if they'd like to comment on it. Uh, also, a scary story that's coming from the province of uh, uh, New Brunswick, I think, and Moncton. So there was a fellow who's pled guilty to a variety of sex crimes and sex crimes against youth. So he's now pled guilty to a variety of uh, five counts of sexual interference. And the importance of this story in this province is that he didn't just teach in New Brunswick. He taught in this province as well. So for over the course of some nine years, this guy, Stephen Blackwood, was a substitute teacher in the St. John's metro region. So apparently some of these crimes may indeed include what has happened in this province. But it just goes to show you that when we have some of these uh, concerns with uh, children's safety, when they're at the school, some of those programs that have been supported far and wide, for instance, like when we talk with Bevmore Davis about body safety and what have you it's just another example of anything we can do for those red flags to be understood acknowledged and the next steps taken by our children is probably a pretty important thing so that's the story jumped off the page when he has finally pled guilty to those very serious crimes in the province of new brunswick and yes 
he was indeed teaching in this province. Uh, what were the dates that he was here? Over the course of nine years. Uh, da, 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 da. And he was a supply teacher for the Anglophone East School District between October the 6th and, two, and November the 4th of 2022. And what those nine years are, not specified in the news story, but we'll see if we can get that information for you. You know, one of the things that did come out of the conversation with Jennifer Williams, of course, the CEO at NL Hydro, is about any implications regarding interconnectivity with any of these wind, hydrogen, and ammonia proposals and our grid. The takeaway for me there was, unlike remember years ago when there was talk of Alderaan uh, coming to Labrador, expanding mining operations, and their need for electricity, and the want for the province to pay for it. Ms. Williams was quite clear in saying any of those implications when the infrastructure cost would have to be borne by the company, by the proponent. Because I think we all have a general concern, you know, and it depends where you live. If you live in close proximity to where some of these wind farms will be, your concerns would be different from those who are well removed. I wouldn't have to see it. It wouldn't have an impact on any of your day-to-day hobbies or your enjoyment of the outdoors. So, yeah, it would be an environmental concern in many pockets of the province. And for those who would not see what people refer to as the eyesore, these massive turbines, and just for context, one more time, the Heide Confederation building is 64 meters. Some of these towers are like 178 meters tall, so they are ginormous. So that's good news to know that any additional cost is going to be borne by the company because it does not belong coming out of my pocket. So that was a nice piece of protection offered there. Also, when referring to some further protections, environmental liabilities, uh, decommissioning of these projects, when and if they either exist or their forecasted lifespan of 35 to 40 years, and if they go sideways and the business model doesn't live up to their hopes and their aspirations today. Sureties will be in place so that all of the cost for the towers to come down, for the land to be reclaimed, that will be once again borne by the proponent. So when we have the concept of pollute or pays, it's absolutely part and parcel with this, as we were told and confirmed by the Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology, Andrew Parsons, on this program last week. And then that additional bit of protection, financially speaking, when we talk about these four or maybe more wind proposals that may be peppered around the province. There has been a question offered by a listener regarding where some of these projects were and asked that was asked why there were none on the great northern peninsula and i think the inference was that how come the province isn't pushing some potential economic upside for that part of the province which could use it but i guess the fact or it is the the key there is that it was land available, but none of the companies chose that part of the province to potentially set up shop versus out in Combi Chance, versus on the Buren Peninsula, versus in the Exploits Valley, and of course, yes, on the Port of Port Peninsula. So a couple of interesting tidbits coming from those few chats over the last few days. Uh, let's get back to the phones. Go to line number one. Say good morning to the Executive Director at the Eating Disorder Foundation. That's Paul Toomey. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and how are you today? Not too bad, sir. How about you? Not bad at all. Great show you're having this morning. I'm not going to keep very much of your time this morning. I just wanted to remind everybody that uh, it's a beautiful Wednesday, and it is the last day, the last night for Jack, uh, for drive-in bingo at Jackburn Regional uh, for the season for us. So our final bingo is on tonight. Our gates will open at 6 o'clock. Bingo will start at seven. Uh, $2,500 plus in prizes to be given away and lots of fun to be had by all. Yeah, and hopefully you get a crowd. And, of course, we all know the importance of these fundraising initiatives for the ongoing operations. Uh, very quickly, 
Has there been any further conversation between your organization and the Department of Health when we talk about the healthy food options? Because, you know, we, we had a conversation about what it means, and we're told that blacklisting foods is not part of recovery from an eating disorder. Has anyone at the department picked up on your concerns? Has there been any further conversation as to what, what you said, what it means for their policy and proposals going forward? Not, not at this point, Patty. However, I did get an indication last week uh, that... Uh, I was going to uh, possibly be invited to a meeting that was coming up with people from the uh, from the eating disorder programs to have a discussion with the uh, with the healthy foods uh, group with uh, with the health services people. So I'm looking forward to that. I've actually had the, the pleasure in the last five days of that. Of enjoying the food at the health sciences center. Just got home yesterday. So. <laughs> And what does that mean? You were in the hospital, Paul? Yes, I was, yeah. 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 So I had some surgery done, so uh, had a chance to sort of see what was what was happening there. And you can see the changes and got a lot of reaction from a variety of people, um, clients, visitors, and, um, you know, dare I say, even staff. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, concern and uh, a lack of understanding as to, as to why this policy has been considered at this time and what people believe the impact is going to be. So it's certainly something that, uh, that I don't want to let go. I want to continue to be a part of the discussion from the foundation point of view, and we'll certainly work with, uh, with our friends within the uh, eating disorder programs, within healthcare, health system services, and uh, we'll see where it takes us over in the coming weeks. Uh, well, I appreciate that, and an update when available is welcomed here on the program. Good luck with the BINGO tonight, and I appreciate the time. All right. Thanks, Patty. Really appreciate you taking the time that you have to support the bingo this year by promoting it for us and by giving me an opportunity to to talk about it and to talk to you about um, any other concerns that relate to uh, impacts on people who are dealing with eating disorders. Anytime. Stay in touch, Paul. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, there we go. So the correctional officers are represented by NAEP. We've heard the stories about the conditions for years inside the penitentiary, the dungeon that it is, the overwhelming heat, the rodent infestation, the shortage of staff. So sometimes when we talk about the prison system, people kind of roll their eyes because, for the most part, the consensus has been that you do the crime, you do the time. And no one disputes that. That's absolutely part and parcel of criminal justice. But when we have a staffing shortage, then if you don't really care about the prisoners, certainly people have the time to understand the implication on the staff. And when the staff is short, like it is at HMP at this point, it has implications for safety inside the prison. You know it does. I've been told that some of the rumbles inside are that there, people are surprised that it hasn't been more violent than it has been given the persistent lockdowns, the missing of medical appointments, the lack of visitation, the lack of recreation. So to get an update about a couple of measures that the province announced yesterday, Regarding correctional officers, join us on line number two is the president of NAEP. That's Jerry Earl. And good morning, Jerry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for the opportunity, Patty. And as in your preamble there, like I said, most often the staff that work in our correctional facilities across the province, in particular HMP, because just correctional officers and other classifications, they're often quite forgotten about. So there's been a number of discussions actually going back for some months. We've talked about it for a long time, the conditions inside the facility and certainly the difficulty with retaining officers. I always sort of talk about keeping staff, whether that be in corrections or other institutions, and then what 
what can we do uh, to acknowledge them and then try to recruit in these difficult environments. So that's some of the things that we've been working on for months, and we continue to have conversations as we speak to look what else we can do uh, and even enhance uh, some of the, the initiatives. Paint the picture for what's going on inside the pen. We can hear about rats and mice. We can hear about heat. What are the correctional officers actually saying? And my, one of the big concerns for me is that when you have a staffing shortage and the lack of rec and longer in your cell yep. and all those implications and the heat and the aggravation and the criminals that are in there, safety must be a real big concern on top of being uncomfortable. Absolutely. Safety is always a concern in these facilities, and especially when you have staffing challenges. Uh, and the officers and the other occupations that work here, because we have other groups that work there and other classifications, they're first and foremost, they'll actually talk about the inmates that they're responsible for before they even talk about themselves. I'm not sure if you've even seen a report we commissioned recently where we interviewed a number of officers and presenters to government. They always talk about the inmates there, the need to be able to provide recreation to them, mental health support. So people there with all kinds of issues that the officers uh, and its sufficient resources want to be able to do. So what we have been doing, and i got to give credit where credit's due, we was challenging in the beginning. Uh, we have sat at a table where in some of the meetings the minister have attended himself. I've sat in on some of them. Uh, correctional officers, something I've advocated for a long time, not only for officers, any frontline workers, engage them, listen to them, uh, and then try to act upon uh, some of the training initiatives. Like this is things that we've advocated for some time. We can do training in Newfoundland Lander where we used to. Uh, so now they've done a, what, and this was announced a little bit earlier, but this is all part of this, this working group we have, the core training in Labrador where we're going to see 20 people trained. That will add to the complement staff. So that's training right here in Newfoundland Labrador, uh, actually specifically recruiting people from Labrador and from the island with seats. Uh, then actually funding where we're going to assist Newfoundlanders and Labradorians with funding to go off to Atlantic Police Academy. They were able secure 13 seats for the next enrollment. We're continuing to have conversations to make a greater number. And we've even had conversations where why can't we do, do do this in one of our public colleges here? We do advanced care paramedics. We do licensed practical nursing. Why can't we do a program in Newfoundland Labrador? Because we've trained before, so why can't we recruit here locally, put them in training programs? So that's in discussion, but hopefully uh, to help with the shortages, we will have 33 new recruits this winter. But in the interim, there has to be acknowledgement for what the officers are doing, uh, working short, working extra hours to meet that. So there was initiatives put in place to try to acknowledge the officers that's there. And then the next piece to nail down is uh, getting a collective agreement included in a couple of weeks. So there's been a couple of tables on the go, and this has been, uh, give credit, like just being pretty well almost weekly meetings for the summer. Uh, I just wish it was done earlier in the year to acknowledge what the officers and the inmates go through. Because like I said, the working conditions of the officers and other staff is the living conditions of the inmates there. And like you said in the preamble, I'm sure people roll roll their eyes at inmates, but again, the objective in this system should be when inmates go into these facilities, uh, there's humane conditions at least, and then the services there to hopefully be able to return into society uh, with some enhanced skills, uh, support children, because correction officers are not trained mental health professionals. They're not, you know, they, with the current shortage, they can't even get the basic training and supports because that's who support the inmates when they're internally for a great part are the officers. Uh, and believe it or not, in most cases, they have decent relationships because the officers have a respect for the inmates and the inmates have a respect for the officers because they're there. And, uh, and sometimes I joke, we say, yeah, inmates... But, 
HMT specifically, inmates spend two years there. We have staff that spend 25, 30, 35 years there. So that's the next big piece of this puzzle. Uh, and I've said this to all the parties, uh, the current government and the opposition parties, nobody should stand in the way of getting a new facility because, again, as you preamble, uh, uh, the working conditions there, the conditions of the inmates, most cannot imagine what it's like. Many of our facilities are bad. The absolute worst is down by the side of Kitty Lake. And as I say all the time, because it's demonstrably a fact, is they're getting out. If they get out worse than they went in, it's not good for anybody, regardless of your thoughts on leniency or severity of punishment or the uh, facility itself, they're getting out. And so there's got to be some attention to that. Uh, so there was one time retention bonus of $2,500. Some of the details not worked out. And then there is the commitment of double time for on their first regularly scheduled day of rest. But it's a six-month incentive. Uh, Any understanding as to why it expires in February? Well, actually, there's a commitment that will be reviewed because what the objective is is with the recruits coming out, we're open that will fill uh, if we don't lose more because you've got to try to retain the officer. We've had officers that are considering other career paths, and rightfully so, given the conditions, if they don't air, things are going to improve. Uh, so something try to say to officers for at least this period of time, this is an interim measure until a few other things fall into place. And then hopefully with the recruits, if we have 20 graduate in Labrador, 30, Atlantic Police Academy, that will plug a good many of the vacancies, but we have to continue to make sure we secure seats in the Atlantic Police Academy if we can't do the training here. Because I'm not convinced that we cannot do most, if not all, this training here in Newfoundland. We always did. Uh, it was called, referred to as core training, and that's actually just been Labrador, because again, we said, if you train, one of the recruiting issues in Labrador, we can't get people to move to Labrador, so we're saying train people from Labrador, and more likely they'll stay. So I think we need to do that similar initiative. So that's part of the interim measure. But, again, it's committed to that is up for review by the parties. Uh, if the interim and the longer-term measures, measures don't uh, resolve, and there's other recruitment. Besides that training, uh, there's a recruitment initiatives where they have been successful in recruiting what we call experienced people uh, to come from other provinces. So, again, there's other issues to be addressed to, again, secure the recruits. And hopefully, because, like I said, there is a number of vacancies that are being filled. And that's the overtime piece. Regular staff are actually filling that now. So there's got to be an acknowledgement of those staff for stepping up on their days off uh, in these environments uh, for at least in the interim. And then that will be reviewed, Patty, at the end, before the end of that period, actually. This sort of general th- question and conversation come on here, but there's lots of thoughts and opinion pieces written and stories from different provinces about what organized labor and potential for labor unrest looks like. Pandemic's been tough and then we've had uh, spats about remote work and all those types of things. So there's all this bubbling over of the possibility for labor unrest right across the country. I read newspapers from virtually every province and there's similar pieces and stories coming out of every province. What's your thoughts on what people are talking about with the labor unrest that's in the offing, I'm told? The labor unrest is its certainly there. Uh, I think during, we used the term during the pandemic, that everybody was uh, referred to as heroes, whether in corrections, whether in healthcare, whether social workers, whether in our NLC stores, whether in a number of areas. And it's almost now that the pandemic is weighing. Uh, 
frontline workers are more or less, well, you, you got us through this, uh, but workers are realizing that, wait now, we bring a significant value in our labor in a number of sectors, uh, and we're not prepared to be forgotten. And, of course, the economic impacts in this province across the country, but here in this province specifically, workers, and I can't imagine those that are not in some decent jobs that are feeling, but we're certainly hearing that members are affected by interest rate hikes to cost of living just as every Newfoundland Labrador. And it is frustrating to workers. Like I said, for a couple of years, there were people that were banging pots and pans how wonderful workers were, but it seems like now a number of employers and even governments are not paying the same attention to people that are delivering valuable service, just like we're just talking about corrections. But we have that repeated in a number of sections. You were just talking about social workers, licensed practical nurses, paramedics, and a whole host of groups that, wait now, they put up there and say, we were wonderful 24 weeks ago, but what about today? So there is a significant degree of frontline workers saying, uh, we've had enough. Uh, and if employers and governments are not going to acknowledge us for what we bring, what we contribute every day, uh, I have a funny feeling you'll see a lot more unrest. I appreciate the time this morning, Jerry. Thanks a lot. Greatly appreciate it, Patty, and thank you to you and your listening audience. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a great day. You too. That's uh, Jerry Orleans, the president at NAEP. And one of the things that leads to some of this quote-unquote unrest is that the whole disparity between the haves and the have-nots is growing. Whoever is the middle class, I'm not really sure anymore, all the politicians absolutely uh, will pander to whoever they think is the middle class because it used to be that was the bulk of of society. But now with the growing wealth at the top, and this is not a eat the rich, hate the rich kind of conversation. It's just about reality. So in the past decade, billionaires have seen their wealth grow by over 100%, somewhere in the neighborhood of 110%. So they control and have what was once a decade ago, $5.6 trillion, and now it's almost $12 trillion. So that whole bit about windfall taxes and whoever is the absolute uber-rich, and there is a difference between having $2 million and $200 billion. I mean, the the fact of the matter is, look, people do work hard, people are innovative, people do indeed uh, create companies, and there's a need for their product or the service, and great jobs. But if we're being honest, is there any reality in this world, certainly in the democratic first developed world, that there's millions of people relying on a food bank and there's people with two, three hundred billion dollars? I mean, that's, that leads to some of the pressures we see in society. It absolutely does. Anyway, let's go and take a break. When we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Now another conversation about the fact that the province, you know, just like in 2017 when there was an all-party committee struck to deal with mental health and addictions, really focus on mental health there. And a lot of the recommendations led to the Towards Recovery Report. Now we're told there's still some details yet to be ironed out about an all-party committee regarding addictions specifically and substance abuse. Joining us on line number one is the Executive Director at the U-Turn Drop-In Centre. That's Jeff Bourne. Good morning, Jeff. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you this morning, buddy? I'm doing okay. How you doing, man? Not too bad. Hump day, is it? It is, and a day earlier than normal in a four-day work week. I love it. Okay, this yeah. is a, this is really maybe a strange question, but I think it's worthy of a discussion. So 
I've said that it looks like, and it certainly feels like, the drug-related issues are worse than ever. The amount of drugs, the type of drugs, the number of people using drugs, the number of people addicted, the number of people dying, it just seems worse at every turn. In your opinion, why is the drug issue worse today, or seemingly worse today than it was, let's say, five, ten years ago? What do you think? Uh, it's just that the uh, drugs that you get today, uh, a lot of us tainted. Fair enough. So it's either got fentanyl and there is now some traces of benzos into it. So therefore, the Narcan don't bring you back, right? I mean, that was my thoughts, is that simply the drugs themselves are worse. And, you know, not to make light of anything, but the cocaine supply 20 years ago is not the cocaine supply of today. No, well, when I was actively using the... Uh, most of the population might get some Percocet in with the cocaine, but now like they have fentanyl added to it and everything else. So uh, my view is if you, if you don't get it from a dispensary, whether it's marijuana at the store, uh, don't buy it off the streets because there is uh, lace marijuana on the problems that uh, I heard off a couple of years ago with fentanyl, right? Mm-hmm. So someone goes, how come they're putting fentanyl? What it is, they, they try to get you hooked on... I guess if you're selling drugs, you try to get hooked on, I guess, that rush, and therefore you're going to keep buying even though you don't know what's into it, right? But it's just that it's three grains of salt is enough to, to, to take you out. So, I mean, say that, that's not a whole lot. No, it's not. There's, and you know, we have to remind ourselves that we talk about people who are suffering from severe addictions and the potential for them to uh, have an overdose. But even folks who are very limited users, I don't know if recreational is the right term, it kind of waters it down a little bit. But with zero tolerance built up, you could absolutely, for the first time ever trying, it be the last time you ever tried. So there's a big warning to be had there. Uh, you know, we spoke with Gerard Yetman from the AIDS Committee, uh, I guess it was yesterday here on the show, about his thoughts about the creation of the All-Party Committee. I suppose it can't be a bad thing, but it really feels like we know where some of the solutions lie. We know with enhanced harm reduction policies what we could do to make it safer and better and healthier for people. But what are your initial thoughts on simply the creation of the all-party committee and then we'll get into some of the things you hope they discuss uh well one of the things i can't talk too much on it but uh, i mean say all party mental health addiction like it's great that all parties come together because i got my interview last week i said this is a we problem not a day or dim or you can't go pointing fingers at each other i mean say we got to come together as a team and as a community to make people well in, within the community uh i mean say it's Something that we can sit down and have discussions around. Yes, there's a lot of things that we could do. There's a lot of things we can implement from other provinces or other parts of the world. But the way it is with Newfoundland and Labrador, I find, is with the geographical distance between everybody. Uh, it, it, it's not You can't just take a model from, say, Halifax or New Brunswick or even Ontario or Vancouver. Their model's not going to work in Newfoundland because of our geographical location. What's the geographical concern specifically, Jeff? Is that, you know, there's one thing for uh, proximity to amenities and services and support programs in the larger populated urban centers. So what's your specific concern with geography? Uh, it's, it's just that, I don't know, I don't know the stats and I don't know where the people that's had opiate poisoning is from. But I'm, I'm the golf focus on St. John's at the moment, which is our capital. So there is going to be more people that's uh, got opiate poisoning there. But I'd be kind of curious to know to uh, what other parts of the province is, is this going on with, right? 
Yeah, fair enough, because it's everywhere, you would assume, at different levels of severity or the different number, uh, different numbers uh, involved, but yes, it's everywhere. And you're right, I mean, we went from heroin concerns to then it was an opioid uh, crisis across the world, and now we find ourselves in this fentanyl-related matter and the, synth- the synthetics that are turning people into zombies. It's just really sad. How do you hope the conversation works? Like, if you had to offer your first couple of thoughts to provoke conversation amongst the all-party committee members, where do you want them to start? Uh, We're in a time and generation right now where harm reduction is part of somebody's wellness. So for me, it is, uh, for my own recovery, I I chose complete abstinence. For me, it is not all harm reduction and it's not all complete abstinence. you got to look at the person's wellness and we got to come together because we're building a bridge between harm reduction and complete absence. we got to build that bridge right. Uh, it can't be all one and it can't be all the other. it got to be everything in between. So I'm hoping that we sit down and have a general conversation around of let's come together and work both harm reduction, complete absence models to work on somebody's wellness. Because uh, people people's going people's gonna to use it is a disorder, right? And we got to educate, the, I guess, the population as well. we got to start viewing it as a disorder, not look at them people over there. And some of the language that I read online about some of the people, it's it's sad because that's somebody's child, that's somebody's aunt or uncle or even mom and dad or grandparents. I mean, say it's, it, it, it is a disorder. So we're after coming a long way with mental health, with, I guess, schizophrenia and bipolar and the language around that. So we need to change the language around, I guess, uh, substance use disorder. And for me, I, I choose to say I, I'm abstinent from my drug of choice today rather than saying I'm clean. Because if I'm clean for somebody, that meant I was dirty. I wasn't dirty. I was sick. Well said. I hope that, you know, the committee takes the opportunity because they some of the members of the committee may have some real life experience with someone in their family or their social circle of friends but it's people like you and Gerard and maybe people who have come out the other side in addition to folks like yourself and are not clean they are just absent of the using I, I like the way you phrase that because if we don't hear those voices then inevitably politicians are more likely to get it wrong than they are to get it right uh, Jeff anything else you want to say this morning or tell us about what's going on at U-Turn before we run out of time uh, well, there's a couple of things I, I like to mention that uh, I guess one of them is make sure you got an Narcan kit, right, that you're going to use. Uh, also, me being uh, part of the Recovery Council for the province, I am the chair right now, so that is lived experience or living experience. Uh, so, I mean, say uh, within the last six, seven years, the lived experience voice was heard around the table on all levels of government, and even some of the committees that sat down with CCSA, and there was lived experience. So, I mean, to say uh, lived experience voice is being heard around the table. Uh, some people probably don't know that, but that's been happening now for the last seven or eight years. So sometimes when you read something, well, you need lived experience. Lived experience was around the table. The drug world is changing daily, right? And uh, I guess under that U-turn, we're, we're moving forward. We just hired two part-time staff, so our drop-in hours have gone back to pre-COVID, which uh, also gives me a bit of time to put more, I guess, uh, work into some of these subcommittees that I set on that i got a passion for, I guess, me being a lived experience around a lot of tables. I am the voice for the, the people that still suffer with substance use disorder or, or those that's in recovery, right? So I mean to say it's... 
It's uh, it, it's doable, and uh, we got a long road ahead of us. I mean, to say it's it's where is that right? So it's uh, like I said, make sure you got an Narcan kit. Don't use alone. Uh, if you're using with friends, alternate your use. So therefore, if one of you uh, has opiate poison, at least the other one can bring you back or call nine one one. And you was right there earlier that some of the stats that I read across the country, a lot of them is uh, recreational users that use on the weekends. Uh, one one I read there a number of years ago was uh, he went to a wedding and a bunch of guys went to university together, went up in a hotel room and five of them overdosed and died. And they only used, that's probably the first time they used since he graduated from university, so... Be cautious. Yeah, you got that right. Uh, Jeff, keep up the good work. Appreciate the time this morning. Thanks, buddy. All the best, buddy. You too, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Jeff Bourne. Bourne. He's uh, the ED at the U-Turn Drop-In Center. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go line number two. Good morning, Sue Rose. You're on the air. Well, good morning, Patty. How have you been? I've been, I, uh, I've been well. How about you? I've been well as well. I've been enjoying the beautiful back loo and relaxing, but I, I'm driving to town today, and I had to pull over to call because... Again, you know, with education and and, um, the various issues in education and the number of reports that we've had in the last 10 years, I just find it very sad, actually, very sad that we're doing another all-party committee. Um, I could send you, you know, five reports from, you know, education, social work, I mean, it's just numerous reports and as you know, as well as I do, when we have uh, schools without resources and kids are dropping out in elementary and there's, this is not rocket science. We are not developing the potentials of our students. We haven't for about 20 years. We've been going downhill in education. When we're failing in education, Patty, we're failing everywhere. Uh, the lack of accountability within this Liberal government, and I, as you know, have been a strong Liberal supporter most of my life. That's changing in the last seven years, obviously. So I'm appalled that this all-party committee, and Patty, you know, where do I begin? What report should I read with recommendations that state the facts? Um, you know, the school councils in, in uh, 2018 or 2019 released the School Councils Association of New Zealand Labrador released a report on the violence, the increasing violence. We have teachers that are in classrooms that, uh, you know, they're dealing with so much that they're just drowning. And I'm going to just describe this scenario that was described to me um, um, by a teacher over the summer that I met, and she teaches uh, kindergarten. And she was saying, Sue, it's, and she's a young teacher, Patty. And she said, Sue, it's like this, you know, I, I've got, I think, 20, 20, I think she had 20 kids in her class. And she said, you know, uh, two are on the spectrum. Uh, there's several with ADHD. And uh, there's a couple of other issues with um, uh, with a kid that's not even labeled, but very violent. So she said, every child in my class, she said, is on high alert continuously. And I said to her, I said, what, what does that do to the children? She said, well, so put it this way, by Christmas, they're all in panic mode. And I'm just going to throw that out there to you. And I, I, I have no words to say to the failure 
of this government in education, in health. This was long before COVID, Patty. So I'm feeling, as I'm listening to you and the number, and let's look at Harper Grace, where I've worked with families there. Uh, you know, we've got seven police officers on the back of Lou, Patty, and, and, you know, that goes from Harbor Grace all the way around to, to um, Heart's Content. And uh, there's days that seven, of, seven out of seven are tied up with various issues in Harbor Grace. It's, it's between the drugs. And the, so you have children, Patty, and you and your wife, you know, have been there, and most parents want to be there for their kids uh not all are able to take on educators and not all are able to uh take over when children are being failed in school but uh, this is not rocket science and do we need we need to implement the recommendations from the numerous reports and they should be ashamed of themselves thinking an all-party committee is needed so i'm going to stop talking patty and let you go because you know, for me, uh, some of these things I just don't understand whether it's lack of coherent policy, and it's not just about one thing or another, or it's the inability to see what's coming. Because if we look at aging demographic issues, and if we look at uh, mental health concerns, we look at addiction concerns, we look at safety in school, we look at just housing issues, these things have been developing. I mean, we didn't just wake up and all of these things were worse than they were the day before. These have been trends that have been well understood and well discussed and debated, uh, whether it be on provincial or federal campaign trails, and yet all of a sudden the go-to mechanism is a committee. It just, you know, sometimes these things really do feel like political theater. If they are pragmatic and they're swift and they actually result in the implementation of stuff that we understand and we know how it works and we know where it's done and we know what the outcomes have been, then I can live with it. But if it's just another exercise of possibly futility, then it's just not good enough. These issues have been growing for years. It's not new. Doctor shortages, nurse shortages, anything that you want to talk about did not just happen, not A, because of the pandemic or not B, because we didn't see it coming, because people did see it coming. People have been talking about it. Yes. And it's complete lack of accountability. I mean, you only got to go to the Carter Churchill case in education to see. Uh, and I became it, it was so sad because it's educators that, you know, keep kids in school. But when they're drowning and they can't cope, then then, you know, everyone fails. But you picture a little child that comes from, you know, kids come from loving homes and it's, it's not ranting and roaring and it's not screaming and shouting. And one little child in that class that behavioral issues are developing. Uh, so kids are seeing the teacher get frustrated. They're seeing, you know, uh, everyone feeling, oh my, you know, this, this is this, this is how anxiety is created. And this is how come we have children leaving kindergarten developing anxiety. So I'm just going to, can I just read you two um, recommendations from a report in 2016 from the from social workers? That, sure. That, Quickly before we run out of time, go okay. ahead. Okay. Okay. And this one says what social workers do? They foster and prevent approaches to inappropriate behavior. They deal with kids. That are engaging and non-responsive. Uh, they address classroom management and, and, and disciplinary issues. They bring education and health together. You can't have a... Uh, and this is the problem, Patty. Our, our education system is no accountability. Our health, our justice. So we are in a mess. And now they're going to... So I say shame, 
shame, shame. And I'm going to keep doing what you're doing, Patty. Your voice is very important. And I'm not joking. If you run for politics, call me because I will support you. (laughs) I appreciate that. And bite your tongue. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not joking. Thanks, Sue Rose. Appreciate it. Take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, there we go. Today might be a good day to get on the show. Here's the numbers one more time for your consideration. And the topic, as you know, I'm willing and up for talking about anything. Uh, 709-273-5211 in the St. John's metro region. Toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Well, as you know, the four companies that have been uh, targeted to move forward and advance their possibility to bring the wind, hydrogen, and ammonia play to parts of the province. We've heard from many people on the port of port Peninsula, of course, who... For a large part, well, I don't know what the percentage or the numbers who are all in or all opposed, but in different parts of the province, different conversations, including out in the Exploits Valley, where Botwood would be the hub of activity. Showing us on the line is the mayor of the town of Botwood. That's Jim Sevier. Good morning, Mayor Sevier. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Good to hear from you. Nice to speak with you this morning. Do you pronounce it Sevier or Sevier? Uh, the East Coast generally call it Sevier, but here in the uh, Exploits region area, we call it Sevier. Welcome to the show, Mayor Sevier. So give us an idea about what you hear, because no, no matter what it is and what we're talking about, even if it's not a m- municipal issue, the mayor's hear it all. What are you hearing about the possibility for this type of wind proposal to come to your town? Well, uh, possibilities, well, we think we're pretty well done. Uh, as you know, let's say done. I uh, got the green light from government for Crown Land Submission. We don't see any issue going forward. I know that all the proponents got to... Uh, put forward their environmental assessment and there's a lot of engineering to be done in the next 18 to 24 months but from our perspective talking to our proponents and the people involved uh, going forward we don't really see any issues that that will stop us just uh, and if there are any issues uh, we feel we feel and proponents feel I shouldn't be speaking to them but uh, I think I can share that much that uh, anything that might come up uh, we can certainly mitigate and so uh, on that basis we feel very comfortable that uh, we're going to go uh, full steam ahead on, on this project. And in roughly 24 months, 18, 24 months, <clears throat> we should have shovels in the ground. And, and boy, is it ever going to be busy around here. Busy is a good thing. And then you talk about very quick growth. How is the town of Botwood positioned to deal with what would be an influx of people possibly, certainly in the construction phase? Are you going to need for the company to set up a work camp type of setup like they're talking about for Rural Energy GH2? Or how is the town prepared for what would be an economic shout in the arm and for more and more people to come to Botwood? Because a once rich history with lots of people living in Botwood is not the same story today. That's exactly, Patty. We've had a downturn for, for decades now, no doubt, and our population dropped in. And we don't have the infrastructure, let's say, of some other uh, larger towns. But uh, as we speak, we're working with the proponents on that. Uh, it's probably just a little too early to get into what we what we got done or, or can get done. We're working on that. But, yes, uh, we've got to make some major changes to get ready for the influx of people. I mean, uh, the construction workforce looking at around 1,500, 2,000 people uh, for this region, not just Bowen. I mean, the whole region from, from Grand falls leading signals and all points in between you know uh we're we're, we're smaller than the, i'll use the comparables that's uh, the marius town and stevenville and we got our work cut out for us but uh we're gearing up for it uh we're getting prepared for it and uh, everything goes well we'll be ready for it in uh, when the time comes in let's say 24 months if that's 
that's the timelines that the proponents give us. So just to be clear, you say the conversation is happening with the proponent about the possibility for whether it be a work camp or housing to be constructed, because it's going to be tricky, isn't it? By the time there's a final approval in place and the shovels are in the ground, it becomes a very tight timeline to accommodate maybe 2,000 people working on this project in and around the Exploits Valley. So how does that complicate your path to try to make sure you are prepared? Well, that's exactly. We, we, we meet every week uh, now as council to, to see where our town plan got to be to getting some infrastructure in place. And we're discussing it. At this point in time, uh, we've got some, I'll say, preliminary moves in place where, where we need to go. Uh, but just yet, uh, we have to work a little closer with our proponents on it, uh, what they plan and where they plan to the basis of most of their work, that kind of thing. So right now for us, it's probably just a little too early to, to really fill in the gaps. And I want Patty, uh, I hate to say it like that, but that's where we're to just yet. We've got, uh, I'll say, 24 months to uh, to get in place. So uh, we, we should be fine with that. At least that's where we feel right now, Patty. Fair enough. Uh, this might be a better question for the proponent, but when we talk about some of the issues that people have in different parts of the province, the source of water is one. What is the source of water that they're using or talking about using? Uh, right now, it's uh, our what was our local water supply, uh, Peter's Pond, uh, the people in this region in the Boutwood area, well familiar. That's where we used to take our water supply. But over the years, uh, for different reasons, uh, the town seen the need to tap into the New Bay uh, watershed. That's the Grand Falls watershed, and that's where we too. So the abandoned uh, water supply is what they have in mind for now. So uh, it's uh, been historical for us to have that water supply for Rano. I'll say 30 years, probably 40 years. So that's what the proponents uh, tend to use at this point in time, Patty. When people are looking forward to the economic upside here, what do you hear about environmental concerns? Because these are massive, right? And there will be an impact on people's daily routine and using the outdoors, whether it be berry picking or hunting or trapping or ATVs or whatever. What type of concerns are you hearing that the proponent still needs to address? Uh, actually, Patty, we're not hearing a lot because okay. the, track, the tracks of land that... Uh, that proponents are looking to uh, to use. Well, actually, the crown lands that the government has laid aside for us. Now, they've traditionally already been harvested for probably a couple of times over, maybe even three times over, by Abitibi and paper companies before that. So these uh, backwoods uh, areas that uh, proposed for the wind turbines, they've been uh, logged before, used at woods camps and, and logging camps and uh, well, I said wood roads, and and cut over. So, like, we're go- what are we doing now? Going back there, uh, they're going to be using some of the same roads, existing roads. If you can build some new roads, it's probably where roads were to a generation ago. So, the impact from a wind turbine thing, uh, building pole lines through the lands to get out to, uh, let's say, where the substations plan for for the hook into the hydrogen plant. Uh, I personally, and we've shared it among most of our group, don't see any major impact there. We're going to build roads where the roads before. Uh, we're going to put up wind turbines. You know, the footprint for a wind turbine is very small. Uh, for those impacts, uh, we don't see that much getting in our way, Patty. Anything else you want to tell us about what's going on in the town? Messages for your residents or anything else under the sun, Mayor Sevier? No, uh, just stay tuned. Uh, we're going to get busy. Uh, hopefully everybody that's community included, the business uh, uh, business people, the whole works, uh, get ready because this project, as we see it, that's how we feel, is full steam ahead. We're very excited about it. We're a long time waiting for it. As you know, or if you don't know, uh, we were a town, I think, uh, a number of years back of upwards of 7,000 people. Now we're down to just under 3,000. So, yeah, we've seen a downturn, but we're certainly ready for, uh, we're looking forward to a uh, upturn in those numbers and see our town and region 
uh, busy again because, as you know, this project is is uh, too big and too busy just for one town. The whole region is going to benefit from this year, Patty. Appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Sevier. Thanks a lot. Uh, thank you, Patty. Have a good day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Mayor Jim Sevier, the mayor of the town of Bowood. When we come back, we're going to talk about orthopedic surgery and the fact that some joint replacements have been expanded to Carbonair. Next will be Gander, and that's on top of the already understood expansion to the town of St. Anthony. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Just as an interesting side note, I just see a story pop up from Bloomberg, and it's talking about the African Climate Conference that's just wrapping up now, and they're talking about Africa becoming a powerhouse of energy uh, solutions. They're talking about specifically green hydrogen. That's pretty interesting. Okay, let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Juan. You're on the air. Uh, yes, hi there, Patty. Good morning. Um, very interesting show. There seems to be a lot of uh, very important and um, very serious topics being discussed today, and I think you've done a good job uh, handling all the callers. But um, I was hoping that I might be able to put a little bit of, of levity uh, in today's show. Sure. So um, I'm looking at the website the BFCM website right now, and I'm looking at an article here. And um, my wife and I, we go on your website, maybe not every day, but two or three times a week. And we notice that on the articles, you know, there's no byline. You know, there's no names about, like, you know, who wrote it and so forth. I guess that's the um, uh, the standard um I mean, a procedure at VFCM. But anyway, I'm looking at the article, which is entitled Province to, Ex to Expand Traveling Orthopedic Surgery Program to Carbonier. And if I may take 30 seconds, and this is the part that um, uh, um, gave me a nice chuckle this morning. And I'll take 30 seconds very quickly. The province already has a traveling orthopedic surgery program established in St. Anthony. Between January and July of this year, 76 hip and knee surgeries were performed in St. Anthony. Government expects at least 150 surgeries to be completed in Carbonair annually, with the hope being that at least 300 annual procedures can be completed at the site when things get up and running. <laughs> so um, I uh, wasn't quite sure who wrote that and if they were referring to if that was going to happen before or after the surgeries. And I'm just being a little a little facetious and everything. But I um, think I get the, the inside baseball <laughs> joke. There is the use of up and running. Is that what you were yeah. talking about? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <Fair> Absolutely. <laughs> after the... Um, the hip and uh, knee surgery. So anyway, like I said, I just wanted to, um, you know, share that with everybody. And uh, again, like I said, you've done a great job on some very important um, and very serious topics um, uh, today. So wish you the best for the rest of the day then. Thanks a lot, Juan. Appreciate the time. Okay, take care. All right, bye-bye. A uh, bit of levity, you know me. I'm more than up for some of that content. And in addition, you know, I 
try to pepper some different things off the top of the program that are not all the, about the most serious issues and the dire needs and all the stresses and uh, concerns people are dealing with. As I say, I don't know, a lot, is a bit of good news is more than welcome by me no matter what it is a shout out to someone in your family who's doing great things or someone in your community or just a story you've heard or whatever it is because i guarantee you not only good for me but also good for the uh, listening public because every now and then when we hear something that puts a smile on our faces then how can that be a bad thing so juan did it just there that's a good choice of words so whoever wrote that story in the vocm newsroom bravo and including up and running because i hadn't considered it like that but it's absolutely true Okay, uh, was sent an email that was pretty stern, so be it, and it was about the comments I made off the top, the fact that there's three premiers in the country, notably in uh, B.C., here and Ontario have written the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem about interest rates. And there is an announcement coming today. Now, the comments that they make is, you know, the impact on cost of living and the mortgage pressures and consequently the trickle down to the price to rent a home. All of that's fair and all of that is real. My comment was that when we talk about fiscal policy that absolutely belongs in the hands of governments or monetary policy, which absolutely belongs in the hands of the central banks, I just think that it is in all of our best interest if politicians stay away from the Bank of Canada. I mean, if you look at when there's been political influence or any type of political intervention in any form or fashion into central banking, it's a poor outcome, you know? And the Bank of Canada should always be 100% standalone, independent of all political conversation, interference, intervention, whatever the case may be. So they're not wrong in what they think the impact will be if there's a rate hike today. I've seen a couple of different tweets from people who have got sources in high places, I suppose, that it looks like they might stand firm with uh, the interest rate, the benchmark interest rate, because no one gets this interest rate at 5%, which is the highest it's been in the country since March of 2001. Another issue on that front, look, I'm like you. My purchasing power has diminished and it's not great and inflation still seems to be a massive problem why because i eat and grocery shop and i have to fill up my vehicle and have to eat my home three of the big pressure points regarding the inflationary number there is a so-called potential upside if we're talking about some of the revenue streams that the province relies on generally speaking interest rate go up goes up and the dollar softens. And of course, when we look at oil revenue and what it means for the provincial coffers, it's really counterintuitive and it's not great, but it's just how the math works out. A decrease in the value of the Canadian dollar versus the American greenback just means more revenue on the oil business side. Now I get that that's not something we should be leaning on and hoping for or cheering for because I don't want to pay any more than I have to, to cover the debts that I have, like most of you, the debt issue is real. I mean, Canadian household debt, it's about a $1.81 coming in, or for every dollar coming in, we're paying about a $1.81 in net debt, and that does not include mortgages. So that is pretty serious stuff. So we'll see what the Bank of Canada brings at some point this morning. I think that's coming up soon, to be honest with you. All right, uh, which of these shall I select before we get to the news, uh, David? Let's go to line number one. Okay, caller, you're on the air. Good day, Mr. Jerry. Hi there. Yeah, we spoke about this topic there about a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I'm still haven't got an answer, but I'm still going to keep on trying. 
It's about the charge that I was charged during a pre-owned vehicle sales. These guys are charging $499 plus taxes for the tire and rim warranty. You said you were going to contact some of the grads that you... And I did, and I did, and I talked about it on the show. Um, So I spoke with representatives for three different dealers, and I got three Mm. different answers. Yeah. And that's the problem here, is that if there's not a one-size-fits-all, and there's not Mm. a go-to practice for whether it be... You know, we all pay the administrative fee, and that's across the board. Mm. But the fee that you're talking about, one dealer told me that they, when asked to back it out, they do back it out. One dealer said that they actually offer it to you as opposed to put it in the contract for you to have to request and the other dealer said they charge it every time so obviously there's not a standard set of principles out there for this particular fee so i did ask people working at the dealers and as i mentioned three dealers three different answers you know like i say i'm going to keep it up until i get a final answer like i say and i um i also called uh not mentioned no no dealerships uh like the the, the producer of the vehicle and i had the girl on the line she said, yes he said we'll fix this up to you right away I said, that's okay. But then when I gave her the vehicle that I purchased at the dealership, it wasn't the dealership's vehicle that they sold. It was a pre-owned vehicle, like people like yourself and me trading in. When I told her it was a Tucson, sorry. Well, I said, your company, I said, your business uh, sold me the vehicle that was traded in to your place of business. I'm sorry, it wasn't one of our products, but I said, it was traded in at your store, at your business. Sorry, can't do nothing for you. But if, if it was a vehicle out there selling, there would be no problem. Yeah, once it's traded into them and they're reselling it, it's kind of their product. Yes, the the, 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 the brand name of the vehicle. Yeah. Well, if, uh, I'm, if I, you know, regardless, just pick a manufacturer. So, yes, I might not be selling the badge that I have represented on the big sign out right. in front of my lot, but if I take it in as a trade, right, then I'm selling it. So, consequently, I'm selling the product, which I now assume ownership of. It might not be the brand or the badge right. that I sell with the new vehicles, right. but now it's in my garage. It's my right. vehicle. So, anyway. Right. anyway. I, got, I got no hidden waiver, but I'm the type of the guy that I'm going to keep on plugging. That, and you're welcome to uh, bring it up on this program again in the future, and I appreciate the call this morning. Yeah, like I say, like I, say uh, I listen to your show all the time, and like I say, probably there's a lot of people listening to your show right now that's listening to my complaint. Just say if you bought a bill, or the la- pre-owned bill in the last month or two or three months, you look at your you look at your bill. If they never ask you the option A, you certainly got charged. Quite likely. Absolutely okay. right. I appreciate the time. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. And also, and this was based on a personal experience, but then I read a new story regarding auto insurance premiums. So the auto insurance business lost about a billion dollars last year directly due to theft. There's some hot spots in the country where there's much more prevalent, and there's actually a news story today where they tracked a stolen vehicle from, I think it was somewhere in Ontario, and found it in West Africa. So apparently we're a real hunting ground in this country. So I opened up my insurance renewal the other day. My premiums have skyrocketed no change to my driver's abstract no speeding tickets no drunk driving no distracted driving no accidents no nothing but i saw a huge spike spent a long time trying to get through to my provider yesterday to talk about the premium and the increase i saw so 
there's a list of the top 10 most stolen vehicles in the country. And, of course, there are some of the most popular ones, the CRV and the Civic and all three of the, the Dodge, the Dodge, the Ford, and the Chevy Halftons. They're all on that list. There's some issue out there that it might be impacting us in Atlantic Canada. Auto theft last year up 35% in Atlantic Canada. In Quebec, up 80%. In Ontario, 50%. So if you see a renewal coming in and you see a big spike and you've got a clean abstract, it might be directly related to that. Now, is it as prevalent in this province as it might be in other parts of the mainland? Probably not. So questioning that particular bump in your premium of your auto insurance, if they rely on theft as being one of the arguments, it's a discussion I'm looking forward to having with my provider. Let's take a break. When we come back, my buddy Danny Reardon's in the queue. wants to talk about an upcoming Holy Cross school reunion, and Trevor's dad is a bus driver. We'll talk to Trevor and Dan after this. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Dan Reardon. You're on the air. Hi, right, Patty. How are you doing this morning, sir? Couldn't be better. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, I think we, and, and when I say we, Patty... I'm referring to our committee with the Holy Cross reunion dinner. Uh, we may have sent along uh, an email to you, so I really appreciate this chance just to speak for a minute about the dinner. Uh, it's coming up uh, next week, uh, September 14th, Thursday night, and it's at the Knights of Columbus, which it's, it's usually there. Tickets can be purchased at the Twin Cities Imaging on Campbell Avenue and also at the Knights of Columbus, and they go for $40. And this one is uh, is a big one. It's the 25th, uh, and Holy Cross, uh, like a lot of the schools, if you take St. Pat's and well, St. Bond's certainly even before Holy Cross and St. Pat's, uh, Holy Cross started in 1890, so it's got a long, long history. And uh, for sure, history and the past and, to, and tradition, uh, it's important that they be recognized. And certainly dinners like this, uh, it, it does that, you know, and, and it's important. That it is. I mean, I, I did hear from Mike Power this morning on this one, and I said Mike, I'd give yeah. you guys a shout-out. So last year you honored the 1988 Holy Cross National Challenge Cup soccer team. This year, something near and dear to my heart. What are you doing? Yeah, this year what we've looked at, Patty, lately is looking at the uh, sports themes. And Holy Cross is well known, certainly for soccer, as you just mentioned, basketball, uh, and then outside the school, baseball. Uh, but hockey is not really associated with uh, Holy Cross that much. But what we're doing is we're recognizing we got a little bit of feedback from some of the old hockey players. And uh, way back in the 50s and the 60s, and these guys are still around. They still go to the dinner. So they said, boys, what about the hockey? So we said, fair enough. We're going to have, because 1934, I think I'm correct on that, uh, Holy Cross uh, won the Boyle Cup, and uh, the Boyle Trophy, I'm sorry, and the Boyle Trophy is going to be at the dinner, which is kind of a, a special kind of a, an event. And in addition to that, there were some high school championships very early in the 60s. And uh, we've got uh, people like Roger Monder. Has gone. Roger will be speaking. Frank Buck is another speaker. And those two fellas were players at that time, over 60 years ago, on those teams. So they're going to be speaking at it. And hockey will be highlighted. And as you can imagine, there will be various stories. Just quickly on one note on that, the 61 or 62, I'm not sure which one. 
there was a, quite a, a Donnybrook with the Holy Cross team uh, and St. Pat's. What do you and know? So uh, there's, there's, yeah, yeah, big surprise. And they're, uh, now, Patty, they're the same religion. So uh, with the religious stuff, uh, it, there were two Catholic schools. But anyway... They got into that, and I'm sure that kind of uh, that kind of talk and those stories relating to all of that will be coming up on Thursday night. Well, everybody's slap shot was bigger than it really was. Every <laughs> fight was bloodier than it actually was. <laughs> no kidding. Everything gets bigger, right, in the past and better. But that's true, absolutely true. So that will be in evidence next Thursday night, and uh, I'm sure that there will be uh, uh, not just a lot of memories that will come around, you know, at that time, but... The laughter, and if you can imagine, when people, and we've got guys that are 90 years old, 85 years old. We had one fellow two years ago, and I think he may be coming again. He was 95. So you can imagine when they see each other, and the flash, the flash of the past comes back, and everything comes back, and they just see themselves again living in that youth and that energy and that enjoyment that they have and it becomes a part of you know that becomes part of the fabric of the whole evening and it's beautiful to see and beautiful to be part of and of course i would have played growing up against holy cross because i was in the the denominational system playing for pi Cent. there was four of us was pi uh-huh. st Pius, st pats and holy cross and you mentioned roger monder who was a fine athlete fine baseball player who played with holy cross mm-hmm. i played ball with his son roger monder jr in my baseball yes. days growing up and just before we run out of time and the boil will be the boil trophy itself will be there which i think is great and so it's coming up the 25th annual holy cross reunion and dinner september 14th 7 30 p.m at the knights of columbus right there in st Clair avenue tickets are 40 bucks they're, inve- they're available at the kfc so if you're interested in going it should be a great night of uh storytelling aka lies and uh, some, <laughs> uh, some some great memories uh before we run out of time so you talk about those rivalries let's for a second touch in on a book that is all about rivalry one that you penned called Rivalry. What's the book about, Dan? I know it is because I read it. Oh, gee, I didn't realize you had it, Patty. Good stuff. Uh, that book is, uh, and the title says it all, it focuses on two centers, uh, St. John's, St. John's Caps, and Cornerbrook. And for the longest time, and the book st- uh, makes that pretty clear, I think it's 65 years, basically, and it's longer now because the book is five years old. That book was looking at uh, totally those two centers, and uh, the more than anything, it, it goes into each year of, of the competition between the teams. But my focus on writing that was to try to capture as much as I could the spirit and the drive and the, I guess, the intensity, because that word really hit home for me, uh, the intensity. And I got that when I interviewed and phoned cornerbrook guys you know older guys and talked about when we played and i include myself because i was part of the st john's team you know in in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and went on but really and i think darren coburn had a quote there one of them he's a he's an older player now but he was younger in my day and a tremendous tremendous player and he said we hated each other um and i suppose patty if i could say it if it if it makes any sense it was a healthy kind of hate now if that makes any sense but i and you know what i'm talking about which in in sports and when the games were over and uh Certainly, uh, you know, we, we, we shared all kinds of good conversation. And it's really, really sweet to be able to, just like the Holy Cross Dinner and with that book, to look back at the past. And as you say, things become richer and they start to, to expand a little bit and become grander. But that doesn't take anything away from the joy the absolute joy of that involvement and that competition 
And um, somehow I think, I, I, I do personally think, maybe just because I'm older, that some of that joy is not the same anymore. And, and, I, and I, I don't think there's that ingrained uh, sense of place or maybe of we had it with religion before i'm not saying it was good uh but it was there and there were there were different kind of things that people got their you know they dug their feet in because of whatever reason and they then they really showed on the field or in the rink or in the basketball court or wherever so but rivalry was really and the key word i could have called it i could have called it patty intensity i guess instead of rivalry but that's how it went. Well, we had the same relationship with the Colbrook Barons. This one would be hockey much more for the Royals, pardon me, for me. And sure. Colburn, I played against Colburn, probably one of the finest athletes the province has ever produced. Him, Frankie Humber, guys like that, two of the best baseball yeah. players that we've ever produced, both Cornerbrook boys. Yeah. And so it's great stuff. And let's just for context here, Danny Reardon's Hall of Famer. And you, in the book, you talk about your first start with the Caps going back to 1971 Jubilee Field in Cornerbrook. <laughs> so I remember that part of the book. I remember watching you play ball and I hope the reunion coming up here is going to be uh, gangbusters Dan I really appreciate the time it's good to see you last week hopefully I'll see you again soon thanks Patty thanks so much take good care Bye bye. Dan Reardon, fine man, fine baseball player. And of course, that book is really interesting. And whether the competition is as rich as it was then for Danny and the boys, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it looks like it to me. The rivalries are maybe not quite as heated because you mentioned the religious denominational school system. You know, we went on, it was Saturday afternoon at O'Hare Arena, it was the mix against the prods. <laughs> that brought its own level of intensity to the games. I would suspect. Anyway, let's take a break on time. Trevor, you stay right there. He wants to give a shout out to his dad right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Trevor. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Good. Um, just uh, I'll uh, give you an update on the basketball game, too. Canada's winning. What's the score? Where are we in the game? Uh, uh, it's fourth quarter, uh, less than four minutes, and it's. Ninety-six, eighty-five for Canada. Excellent. Hope they hold on. Slovenia is tough, man. Doncic is no, he's no one to mess around with. So that we got a really solid team. I've been joining the tournament. So appreciate the update on the ball. Yeah, uh, Doncic actually he left the game with an injury. Did he? Oh, yeah, he's gone. Okay. Yeah, that's a big move. Um, but yeah, I want to give a shout out to my dad. He's a bus driver, and. Uh, just uh, my dad drives the bus, and uh, mom works at the uh, cafeteria in Shoal Harbor at the Riverside Elementary. So, is he a retiree that took this on after his career? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, what did he do prior to driving the bus and working at the cafeteria? <laughs> Accounting for the school board. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Terrific. And so, I mean, people, maybe it's they just want to remain active. Maybe they just think they need a, a steady paycheck coming in. But why did he decide to go drive a bus, do you know? Um, he likes being around the children, I think, just being like a granddad. Okay. Yep. Except for the days that, you know, you have unruly kids. So uh, a shout-out to children out there that are being mean to bus drivers. Don't do it. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's really no need of it. There's always going to be some hijinks on the bus. It's just kind of nature of the beast. Some of it is pretty innocent and lighthearted. Some of it maybe not so much. But the driver's job is to get you to school safe. So give them a break and just get where you're going because that's all the driver's trying to do is do it, do it safely make sure that you're okay as a kid. Yeah. Um, yeah, six routes two times a day. That's good. It is. It's a lot. So, Trevor, what's your dad's name? Uh, Brian. Big shout out to Brian this morning driving the bus for the students out of Shoal Harbor. What's the name of the school in Shoal Harbor? I'm sorry. Uh, Riverside. Riverside. Very good. And what age? Uh, what grades are? It's uh, Riverside. Um, it's elementary, primary. Okay, primary, so elementary. K to eight. Yeah. Cool. I love it. I appreciate the time. I'm sure your dad will appreciate the shout out. And I got, um, I'll give myself a shout out. I got my service medal for uh, Afghanistan yesterday. Oh, good for you. Thank you for your service and congratulations. Thank you. Stay in touch, Trevor. Keep the emails coming. All right, man. All the best. Bye. Bye bye. All right, uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Robin. You're on the air. Hi, this is Robin from Manuel's River in CBS. I'm just calling to let everyone know this is the last day to get your Bobber race tickets, the Bobber 50-50 race. The draw is going to be on September 20th, but you have until midnight tonight to get your tickets uh, to get it on the draw. It's a fun thing. Look, I'm going to make the pitch and the plea on behalf of everybody. Bring back the Bobbers. Yes, the uh, yeah, the bobbers are a fun part of it. They really were, I thought, anyway. And I'm sure there's a variety of reasons why the uh, Rennies River or Manuel's River doesn't do the actual bobbers in the bobber race these days. So how does it work? With the bobbers no longer there and you capture the first bobber across the line, how does this all work these days? Now, it is still a 50-50 draw, except it is 100% online okay. as of the pandemic. It kind of took a switch when that hit. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? Maybe it'll be switched in the future. Um, I guess the, if that's what the people want, we love to hear it. Well, I, can't, I don't pretend to speak for everybody. I just personally <laughs> like the sight of the bobbers bobbing along down the river. So that's good. Uh, anything else you want to tell us about what's going on out at Manuel's River? Because for folks in the area, maybe just drive by it and don't take advantage of the trail network and or the interpretation center, but both are fantastic. Yes, we do have um, some youth events going on on Saturdays, such as Young Scientist. So if you want to bring your kids out to learn about science, you can come to that. We also have coming up um, on October 7th is Chefs for Trails, another big event. We have um, tickets on available for members to buy now. Tell me more about the uh, opportunity for children in science. What specifically is on schedule, say, for instance, this Saturday? Anything in particular? This Saturday on the 9th, we have Sweet Science, so a little bit of kitchen chemistry going on. We're going to use candy to learn about different sciences. Is it popular? It is pretty popular, yeah. Um, especially now in the school year, if kids want to continue learning on the weekends, do something a little hands-on and fun, you can come out on Saturday mornings. Sounds good to me, and uh, I appreciate the time. Anything else you want to tell us, Robin, before we say goodbye? Um, I would just like to let everyone know you can make other donations on our website if you would use the trails and would like to see them um, being upkept. And... I hope everyone has a great sunny day. Me too, because I stepped out during the 1130 news. It's actually really hot out. 
Yes, it's actually uh, the sun is breaking out there now, especially outside of the centre here in Manuel's River. It's a super hot day out there, it seems. Hopefully everyone enjoys it, of course. And back to school, final reminder for me not to be a preacher, but come the end of the school day, it's going to be busy out on those roads. And out in your area, there's a ton of schools up and down that track, so people just please be mindful of the fact that there's going to be a lot of congestion in the area, a lot of excited kids may be bolting out where they might necessarily have not done it over the summer, just a bit wound up. I appreciate the time this morning, Robin. Thanks a lot. All right, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, there we go, the bobber race. I do think the bobbers themselves, uh, the visual alone was always a bit of fun. Anyway, and as I did hear Brian mention, and I opined going into the 11.30 news, that I see people talking about their sources at the Bank of Canada and that the central bank was going to hold firm at 5% as their benchmark interest rate, and apparently that's the case. So, and, and again... It's, you know, I forgot to mention with the emailer that voiced their concern about how I talked about the premier's letter is that they're saying, hey, what's wrong with the premier of any province advocating on behalf of the residents? Because an increase in the interest rate will indeed be problematic for many of us across the country trying to service our debt. You know, credit card debt might be out of control for many. And of course, the benchmark interest rate won't impact your credit card, but your line of credit and your mortgage rate and other outstanding loans that you might have that have fluctuations or variables attached to it, it absolutely will be an issue. Now, one thing the governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem, today did not rule out is that if inflation continues, like we saw a spike last month from 2.8 to 3.3, and if that continues, he didn't say that this is the end of the road, but we had 10 straight hikes. And money was virtually free not that long ago. And here we are at 5%. So that's, I think, in many corners of the country, I would imagine it's a welcomed uh, announcement from the central bank. And good news, they're always going to get a live update <laughs> about a game that I'd like to be watching at this moment in time. But Canada looking good against Slovenia. And apparently uh, their superstar, Doncic, was ejected with a couple of technicals. I don't know if it's an injury or a couple of technical fouls, but I guess being on the wrong side of the scoreboard was not good for that particular gentleman. Okay, getting some feedback, and I always appreciate the email, as you know, but uh, I prefer the phone call because it's a call-in show. And lots of reaction to conversations we've had, uh, two in particular off the top of the program this morning. Frank Davis, who's the head of uh, Canadian operations for Pattern Energy, their plans for the Port of Argentia, which is they have a bit of a leg up and a bit of a head start because their first phase does not include the need for any crown lands. So that was interesting. And then there was a lot to the conversation we had with Jennifer Williams, the CEO of Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. So there's a couple of how can we didn't ask this, how can we didn't ask that, one of them was about Beothic Lake and the water levels because it does indeed double as a hydroelectric uh, reservoir. So as I mentioned to that emailer in response via email and on the air, I'll follow up with Hydro and see if they have any comments to offer on that. But whether it be with issues pertaining to muskrat, I think she clarified some issues of better understanding, at least for me. And one issue we did not get to, and there was brief mention of 2041 and the Atlantic Loop and all the rest. If there's going to be this massive surge in demand, as forecasted by utilities across the country, including here in this province, does that not scream that at some point, and I know the appetite for mega projects is very, very low, given how some of them have unfolded in the recent past, notably the Muskrat Falls development, you got to believe if the demand is going where people think it is going, not only in this country, but in the Northeast United States, 
there's going to be the possibility for that massive possibility, massive potential at Gull Island, some 2,225 megawatts. For context, there's well in excess of 5,000 megawatts at the Upper Churchill. Firm output at Musgrave Falls is about 824 megawatts, even though that'll never, that amount will never make its way to Soldier's Pond and or across the, across the Maritime Link. But when there's that 2,225 megawatts at Gull, there's always been consideration for that. There's always been some work being done to assess the viability or the possibility of it. And when you have groups like Hydro-Quebec actively pursuing more markets, which absolutely screams that they need the Upper Churchill in their portfolio. It represents about 15% of the uh, electricity that they produce and that they sell, so they need it. We could not get a, an update from Miss Williams on 2041. No surprise there. All parties are keeping their cards pretty close to the chest or the vest at this moment in time, but some interesting information that if it'd be great tomorrow morning if you wanted to pick up on some of that with a phone call to the program. And just that one more friendly reminder. It doesn't matter if I bring it up doesn't matter if you've heard anyone else bring it up or if you have a different opinion about you know any of these issues that people have been leaning on that conversation is most welcome here on this program when we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on vocm and big land defense open line on behalf of the producer david williams i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye bye